Trina was traumatized by the boys' deaths and could barely speak when the police arrested her. She was so non-functional and listless that her appointed lawyer thought she was incompetent to stand trial. Defendants who are deemed incompetent can't be tried in adversarial criminal proceedings, meaning that the state can't prosecute them unless they become well enough to defend themselves. Criminally accused people facing trial are entitled to treatment and services, but Trina's lawyer failed to file the appropriate motions or present evidence to support an incompetency determination for Trina. The lawyer, who was subsequently disbarred and jailed for unrelated criminal misconduct, also never challenged the state's decision to try Trina as an adult. As a result, Trina was forced to stand trial for second-degree murder in an adult courthouse. At trial... Francis Newsom testified against Trina in exchange for the charges against her being dropped. Trina was convicted of second-degree murder, and the trial moved to the sentencing phase. Delaware County Circuit Judge Howard Reed found that Trina had no intent to kill. But under Pennsylvania law, the judge could not take the absence of intent into account during sentencing. He could not consider Trina's age, mental illness, poverty, the abuse she had suffered, or the tragic circumstances surrounding the fire. Pennsylvania's sentencing law was inflexible. For those convicted of second-degree murder, mandatory life imprisonment without the possibility of parole was the only sentence. Judge Reed expressed serious misgivings about the sentence he was forced to impose. This is the saddest case I've ever seen, he wrote. For a tragic crime committed at 14... Trina was condemned to die in prison. After sentencing, Trina was immediately shipped off to an adult prison for women. Now 16, Trina walked through the gates of the State Correctional Institution at Muncie, an adult prison for women terrified, still suffering from trauma and mental illness and intensely vulnerable, with the knowledge that she would never leave. Prison spared Trina the uncertainty of homelessness, but presented new dangers and challenges. Not long after she arrived at Muncie, a male correctional officer pulled her into a secluded area and raped her. The crime was discovered when Trina became pregnant. As is often the case, the correctional officer was fired, but not criminally prosecuted. Trina remained imprisoned and gave birth to a son. Like hundreds of women who give birth while in prison, Trina was completely unprepared for the stress of childbirth. She delivered her baby while handcuffed to a bed. It wasn't until 2008 that most states abandoned the practice of shackling or handcuffing incarcerated women during delivery. Trina's baby boy was taken away from her and placed in foster care. After this series of events, the fire, the imprisonment, the rape, the traumatic birth, and the seizure of her son, Trina's mental health deteriorated further. Over the years, she became less functional and more mentally disabled. Her body began to spasm and quiver uncontrollably until she required a cane and then a wheelchair. By the time she had turned 30, prison doctors diagnosed her with multiple sclerosis, intellectual disability, and mental illness related to trauma. Trina had filed a civil suit against the officer who raped her, and the jury awarded her a judgment of $62,000. The guard appealed, and the court reversed the verdict because the correctional officer had not been permitted to tell the jury that Trina was in prison for murder. Consequently, 
Trina never received any financial aid or services from the state to compensate for her being violently raped by one of its correctional officers. In 2014, Trina turned 52. She has been in prison for 38 years. She is one of nearly 500 people in Pennsylvania who have been condemned to mandatory life imprisonment without parole for crimes they were accused of committing when they were between the ages of 13 and 17. It is the largest population of child offenders condemned to die in prison in any single jurisdiction in the world. In 1990, Ian Manuel and two older boys attempted to rob a couple who were out for dinner in Tampa, Florida. Ian was 13 years old. When Debbie Bagri resisted, Ian shot her with a handgun given to him by the older boys. The bullet went through Bagri's cheek, shattering several teeth. And severely damaging her jaw, all three boys were arrested and charged with armed robbery and attempted homicide. Ian's appointed lawyer encouraged him to plead guilty, assuring him that he would be sentenced to fifteen years in prison. The lawyer didn't realize that two of the charges against Ian were punishable with sentences of life imprisonment without parole. The judge accepted Ian's plea and then sentenced him to life with no parole, even though he was thirteen. The judge condemned Ian for living in the streets, for not having good parental supervision, and for his multiple prior arrests for shoplifting and minor property crimes. Ian was sent to an adult prison, the Apalachee Correctional Institution, one of the toughest prisons in Florida. The correctional staff at the prison processing center couldn't find any uniforms that would fit a boy Ian's size, so they cut six inches from the bottom of their smallest pants. Juveniles housed in adult prisons are five times more likely to be the victims of sexual assault, so the staff at Apalachee put Ian, who was small for his age, in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement at Apalachee means living in a concrete box the size of a walk-in closet. You get your meals through a slot. You do not see other inmates, and you never touch or get near another human being. If you act out. By saying something insubordinate or refusing to comply with an order given to you by a correctional officer, you are forced to sleep on the concrete floor of your cell without a mattress. If you shout or scream, your time in solitary is extended. If you hurt yourself by refusing to eat or mutilating your body, your time in solitary is extended. If you complain to officers or say anything menacing or inappropriate, your time in solitary is extended. You get three showers a week and are allowed forty-five minutes in a small caged area for exercise a few times a week. Otherwise, you are alone, hidden away in your concrete box, week after week, month after month. In solitary, Ian became a self-described cutter. He would take anything sharp on his food tray to cut his wrists and arms just to watch himself bleed. His mental health unraveled, and he attempted suicide several times. Each time he hurt himself or acted out, his time in isolation was extended. Ian spent eighteen years in uninterrupted solitary confinement. Once a month, Ian was allowed to make a phone call. Soon after he arrived in prison on Christmas Eve in 1992, he used his call to reach out to Debbie Bagri, the woman he'd shot. When she answered the phone, Ian spilled out an emotional apology. Expressing his deep regret and remorse, 
Miss Bagri was stunned to hear from the boy who had shot her, but she was moved by his call. She had physically recovered from the shooting and was working to become a successful bodybuilder and had started a magazine focused on women's health. She was a determined woman who didn't let the shooting derail her from her goals. That first surprising phone call led to a regular correspondence. Ian had been neglected by his family before the crime took place. He'd been left to wander the streets with little parental or family support. In solitary, he met few prisoners or correctional staff. As he sank deeper into despair, Debbie Bagri became one of the few people in Ian's life who encouraged him to remain strong. After communicating with Ian for several years, Bagri wrote the court and told the judge who sentenced Ian of her conviction that his sentence was too harsh and that his conditions of confinement were inhumane. She tried to talk to prison officials and gave interviews to the press to draw attention to Ian's plight. No one knows more than I do how destructive and reckless Ian's crime was. But what we're currently doing to him is mean and irresponsible, she told one reporter. When this crime was committed, he was a child, a 13-year-old boy with a lot of problems, no supervision, and no help available. We are not children. The courts ignored Debbie Bagri's call for a reduced sentence. By 2010, Florida had sentenced more than a 100 children to life imprisonment without parole for non-homicide offenses, several of whom were 13 years old at the time of the crime. All of the youngest condemned children, 13 or 14 years of age, were black or Latino. Florida had the largest population in the world of children condemned to die in prison for non-homicides. The section of south-central Los Angeles where Antonio Nunez lived was plagued by gang violence. Antonio's mother would force her children to the floor when shooting erupted outside their crowded home, which happened with disturbing regularity. Nearly a dozen of their neighbors were shot and killed after being caught in the crossfire of gun violence. The difficulties outside Antonio's home were compounded by severe domestic abuse inside the home. From the time Antonio was in diapers, he endured abusive beatings by his father, who hit him with his hand, fist, belt, and extension cords, causing bruises and cuts. He also witnessed terrifying conflicts in which his parents would violently assault each other and threaten to kill one another. The violence was so bad that on more than one occasion, Antonio called the police. He began experiencing severe nightmares from which he awoke screaming, Antonio's depressed mother neglected him. When he cried, she just left him alone. The only activity she could recall ever attending for Antonio was his graduation from a drug abuse resistance education program in elementary school. He was excited to take his picture with the police officer, she would later say. He wanted to be a police officer when he grew up. In September 1999, a month after he turned 13, Antonio Nunez was riding his bicycle near his home when a stranger shot him in the stomach, side, and arm. Antonio collapsed onto the street. His 14-year-old brother, Jose, heard him screaming and ran to his aid. Jose was shot in the head and killed when he responded to his little brother's call for help. Antonio suffered serious internal injuries that hospitalized him for weeks. When Antonio was released from the hospital... His mother sent him to live with relatives in Las Vegas, where he tried to recover from the tragedy of Jose's death. Antonio was relieved to be away from the dangers of South Central Los Angeles. He stayed out of trouble, 
was helpful and obedient at home, and spent evenings doing his homework with help from his cousin's husband. He put the gangs and violence of South Central behind him and showed remarkable progress. But within a year, California probation authorities ordered him to return to Los Angeles because he was on probation following his adjudication as a ward of the court for a prior offense. In poor urban neighborhoods across the United States, black and brown boys routinely have multiple encounters with the police. Even though many of these children have done nothing wrong, they are targeted by police, presumed guilty, and suspected by law enforcement of being dangerous or engaged in criminal activity. The random stops, questioning, and harassment dramatically increase the risk of arrest for petty crimes. Many of these children develop criminal records for behavior that more affluent children engage in with impunity. Forced back to South Central, blocks from where his brother was murdered, Antonio struggled. A court later found that, quote, living just blocks from where he was shot and his brother was killed, Nunez suffered trauma symptoms, including flashbacks, an urgent need to avoid the area, a heightened awareness of potential threats, and an intensified need to protect himself from real or perceived threats, end quote. He got his hands on a gun for self-defense but was quickly arrested for it and placed in a juvenile camp where supervisors reported that he eagerly participated in and positively responded to the structured environment and guidance of staff members. After returning from the camp, Antonio was invited to a party where two men twice Antonio's age told him that they were planning to fake a kidnapping to get money from a relative who would pay the ransom. They insisted that Antonio join them. Fourteen-year-old Antonio got in a car with the men to pick up the ransom money. The pretend victim sat in the back seat, while Juan Perez drove and Antonio sat in the passenger seat. Before they arrived at their Orange County destination to retrieve the money, they found themselves being followed and then chased by two Latino men in a gray van. At some point, Perez and the other man gave Antonio a gun and told him to shoot at the van, and a dangerous high-speed shootout unfolded. The men chasing them were undercover police officers. But Antonio didn't know that when he fired. When a marked police car joined the pursuit, Antonio dropped the gun just before the car crashed into some trees. No one was injured, but Antonio and Perez were charged with aggravated kidnapping and attempted murder of the police officers. Antonio and his 27-year-old co-defendant were tried together in a joint trial, and both were found guilty. Under California law, a juvenile has to be at least 16 to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for murder, but there is no minimum age for kidnapping. So the Orange County judge sentenced Antonio to imprisonment until death, asserting that he was a dangerous gang member who could never change or be rehabilitated, despite his difficult background and the absence of any significant criminal history. The judge sent him to California's dangerous, overcrowded adult prisons, at 14, Antonio became the youngest person in the United States condemned to die in prison for a crime in which no one was physically injured. Most adults convicted of the kinds of crimes with which Trina, Ian, and Antonio were charged are not sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. In the federal system, adults who unintentionally commit arson murder, where more than one person is killed, usually receive sentences that permit release in less than 25 years. 
Many adults convicted of attempted murder in Florida serve less than 10 years in prison. Gun violence with no reported injuries frequently result in sentences of less than 10 years for adult defendants, even in this era of harsh punishments. Children who commit serious crimes long have been vulnerable to adult prosecution and punishment in many states, but the development of juvenile justice systems has meant that most child offenders were sent to juvenile detention facilities. Juvenile justice systems vary across the United States, but most states would have kept Trina, Ann, or Antonio in juvenile custody until they turned 18 or 21. At most, they might have stayed in custody until age 25 or older if their institutional history or juvenile detention records suggested that they were still a threat to public safety. In an earlier era, if you were 13 or 14 when you committed a crime, You would find yourself in the adult system with a lengthy sentence only if the crime was unusually high profile or committed by a black child against a white person in the South. For instance, in the infamous Scottsboro Boys case in the 1930s, two of the defendants, Roy Wright and Eugene Williams, were just 13 years old when they were wrongfully convicted of rape and sentenced to death in Alabama. In another signature case of juvenile prosecution, George Stinney, a 14 year old black boy, was executed by the state of South Carolina on June 16, 1944. Three months earlier, two young white girls who lived nearby in Alkaloo, a small mill town where the races were separated by railroad tracks, had gone out to pick flowers and never returned home. Scores of people across the community went searching for the missing girls. Young George and his siblings joined the search party. At some point, George mentioned to one of the white adult searchers that he and his sister had seen the girls earlier in the day. The girls had approached them while they were playing outside and asked where they could find flowers. The next day, the dead bodies of the girls were found in a shallow ditch. George was immediately arrested for the murders because he had admitted seeing the girls before they disappeared and was the last person to see them alive. He was subjected to hours of interrogation without his parents or an attorney present. The understandable anger about the death of the girls exploded when word circulated that a black boy had been arrested for the murders. The sheriff claimed that George had confessed to the murders, though no written or signed statement was presented. George's father was summarily fired from his job. His family was told to leave town or else they would be lynched. Out of fear for their lives, George's family fled town late that night, leaving George behind in jail with no family support. Within hours of announcing the alleged confession, a lynch mob formed at the jailhouse in Alkaloo, but the 14 year old had already been moved to a jail in Charleston. A month later, a trial was convened. Facing charges of first degree murder, George sat alone in front of an estimated crowd of 1,500 white people who had packed the courtroom and surrounded the building. No African Americans were allowed inside the courthouse. George's white court appointed attorney, a tax lawyer with political aspirations, called no witnesses. The prosecution's only evidence was the sheriff's testimony regarding George's alleged confession. The trial was over in a few hours. An all white jury deliberated for 10 minutes before convicting George of rape and murder. Judge Stoll promptly sentenced the 14 year old to death. George's lawyer said there would be no appeal because the family didn't have the money to pay for it. Despite appeals from the NAACP and black clergy who asked that the sentence be converted to life imprisonment, 
Governor Olin Johnson refused to intervene, and George was sent to Columbia to be executed in South Carolina's electric chair. Small, even for his age, the five-foot-two, ninety-two-pound Stinney walked up to the chair with a Bible in his hand. He had to sit on the book when prison staff couldn't fit the electrodes to his small frame. Alone in the room, with no family or any people of color present, the terrified child sat in the oversized electric chair. He frantically searched the room for someone to help, but saw only law enforcement personnel and reporters. The adult-sized mask slid off George's face when the first jolt of electricity struck his body. Witnesses to the execution could see his wide-open, tearful eyes and saliva dripping from his mouth. Eighty-one days after being approached by two young girls about where flowers might be found, George Stinney was pronounced dead. Years later, rumors surfaced that a white man from a prominent family confessed on his deathbed to killing the girls. Recently, an effort has been launched to exonerate George Stinney. The Stinney execution was horrific and heartbreaking, but it reflected the racial politics of the South more than the way children accused of crimes were generally treated. It was an example of how policies and norms once directed exclusively at controlling and punishing the black population have filtered their way into our general criminal justice system. By the late 1980s and early 1990s, the politics of fear and anger sweeping the country and fueling mass incarceration was turning its attention to children. Influential criminologists predicted a coming wave of super predators with whom the juvenile justice system would be unable to cope. Sometimes expressly focusing on black and brown children, theorists suggested that America would soon be overcome. By elementary school youngsters who packed guns instead of lunches, and who have absolutely no respect for human life, panic over the impending crime wave expected from these radically impulsive, brutally remorseless children led nearly every state to enact legislation that increased the exposure of children to adult prosecution. Many states lowered or eliminated the minimum age for trying children as adults, leaving children as young as eight. Vulnerable to adult prosecution and imprisonment, some states also initiated mandatory transfer rules, which took away any discretion from prosecutors and judges over whether a child should be kept in the juvenile system. Tens of thousands of children who had previously been managed by the juvenile justice system, with its well-developed protections and requirements for children, were now thrown into an increasingly overcrowded, violent, and desperate adult prison system. The predictions of super predators proved wildly inaccurate. The juvenile population in America increased from 1994 to 2000, but the juvenile crime rate declined. Leading academics who had originally supported the super predator theory to disclaim it. In 2001, the Surgeon General of the United States released a report labeling the super predator theory a myth, and stated that quote. There is no evidence that young people involved in violence during the peak years of the early 1990s were more frequent or more vicious offenders than youths in earlier years. End quote. This admission came too late for kids like Trina, Ian, and Antonio. Their death in prison sentences were insulated from legal challenges or appeals by a maze of procedural rules, statutes of limitations. And legal barricades designed to make successful post-conviction challenges almost impossible.
When I met Trina, Ian, and Antonio years later, they had each been broken by years of hopeless confinement. They were legally condemned children hidden away in adult prisons, largely unknown and forgotten, preoccupied with surviving in dangerous, terrifying environments with little family support or outside help. They weren't exceptional. There were thousands of children like them scattered throughout prisons in the United States. Children who had been sentenced to life imprisonment without parole or other extreme sentences. The relative anonymity of these kids seemed to aggravate their plight and their despair. I agreed to represent Trina, Ian, and Antonio, and our office would eventually make challenging death in prison sentences imposed on children a major focus of our work. But it became immediately clear that their extreme, unjust sentences were just one of the problems that had to be overcome. They were all damaged and traumatized by our system of justice. Trina's mental and physical health made her life in prison extremely challenging. She was grateful for our help and showed remarkable improvement when we told her that we were going to fight to get her sentence reduced. But she had many other needs. She talked constantly about wanting to see her son. She wanted to know that she was not alone in the world. We tracked down her sisters and arranged a visit where Trina could see her son, and it seemed to strengthen her in ways I wouldn't have thought possible. I flew to Los Angeles and drove hundreds of miles through the heart of Central California farmland to meet Antonio at a maximum security prison dominated by gangs and frequent violence. He was trying to acculturate himself to a world that corrupted healthy human development in every way. Reading had always been challenging for Antonio, but he had a strong desire to learn and was so determined to understand that he would read a passage over and over, looking up unfamiliar words in the dictionary we sent him until he got it. We recently sent him Darwin's *The Origin of Species*, which he hopes will help him better understand those around him. It turns out that Ian was very, very bright. Although being smart and sensitive made his extended time in solitary confinement especially destructive. He had managed to educate himself, read hundreds of books, and write poetry and short stories that reflected an eager, robust intellect. He sent me dozens of letters and poems. I'd return to the office after traveling for a few days, and often find letters from Ian. Sometimes I'd find within a letter a scrap of wrinkled paper, which, once unfolded, would reveal thoughtful and sobering poems with titles like "Uncried Tears." Tied up with words, the unforgiving minute, silence, and Wednesday ritual. We decided to publish a report to draw attention to the plight of children in the United States who had been sentenced to die in prison. I wanted to photograph some of our clients in order to give the life without parole sentences imposed on children a human face. Florida was one of the few states that would allow photographers inside a prison. So we asked prison officials if Ian could be permitted out of his solitary, no-touch existence for an hour, so that the photographer we hired could take the pictures. To my delight, they agreed and allowed Ian to be in the same room with an outside photographer. As soon as the visit was over, Ian immediately wrote me a letter. Dear Mr. Stevenson, I hope this letter reaches you in good health and everything is going well for you. The focal point of this letter is to thank you for the photo session with the photographer, and obtain information from you how I can obtain a good amount of photos. As you know, I've been in solitary confinement approximately fourteen and a half years. It's like the system has buried me alive, and I'm dead to the outside world. 
Those photos mean so very much to me right now. All I have is $1.75 in my inmate account right now. If I send you a dollar of that, how many of the photos will that purchase me? In my elation at the photo shoot today, I forgot to mention that today, June 19th, was my deceased mom's birthday. I know it's not a big significance, but reflecting on it afterward, it seems symbolic and special that the photo shoot took place on my mother's birthday. I don't know how to make you feel the emotion and importance of those photos, but to be real, I want to show the world I'm alive. I want to look at those photos and feel alive. It would really help with my pain. I felt joyful today during the photo shoot. I wanted it to never end. Every time you all visit and leave, I feel saddened. But I capture and cherish those moments in time, replaying them in my mind's eye, feeling grateful for human interaction and contact. But today, just the simple handshakes we shared was a welcome addition to my sensory-deprived life. Please tell me how many photos I can get. I want those photos of myself almost as bad as I want my freedom. Thank you for making a lot of the positive occurrences that are happening in my life possible. I don't know how exactly the law led you to me, but I thank God it did. I appreciate everything you and EJI are doing for me. Please, send me some photos, okay? Chapter 9 I'm Here Finally, the date for Walter McMillan's hearing had arrived. We would now have an opportunity to present Ralph Myers' new testimony and all the exculpatory evidence we'd discovered in police records that had never been disclosed. Michael and I had gone over the case a dozen times, thinking through the best way to present the evidence of Walter's innocence. Our biggest concern was Myers, mostly because we knew he would feel incredible pressure once he was brought back to the county courthouse, and he'd broken under pressure before. We were consoled by the fact that so much of our evidence was documentary and could be admitted without the complications and unpredictability that Meyer's testimony might introduce. We now had a paralegal on staff, so we brought her into the case. Brenda Lewis was a former Montgomery police officer who joined us after seeing more abuses of power than she could tolerate at the police department. An African-American woman, she was adept even in environments where her gender or race made her an outsider. We had asked her to touch base with our witnesses before the hearing to go over last-minute details and calm their nerves. Chapman had called in the state attorney general's office to help defend Walter's conviction, and they'd sent Assistant Attorney General Don Valeska, a longtime prosecutor with a reputation for being intense and combative. Valesco was a white man in his forties whose fit, medium frame suggested someone who stayed active. The glasses he wore added to his serious demeanor. His brother Doug was the district attorney in Houston County, and both men were aggressive and unapologetic in their prosecution of bad guys. Michael and I had reached out to Chapman once more before the hearing to see if we could persuade him to reopen the investigation and independently re-examine whether McMillan was guilty. But by now, Chapman and all of the law enforcement officers had grown tired of us. They seemed increasingly hostile whenever they had to deal with us. I had considered reporting to them the bomb threats and death threats we'd received since they were likely coming from people in Monroe County. 
but I wasn't sure anyone in the sheriff's or DA's office would care. The new judge on the case, Judge Thomas B. Norton, Jr., had also grown weary of us. We'd had several pretrial hearings on different motions during which he would sometimes become frustrated because of the bickering between the lawyers. We kept insisting on obtaining all files and evidence the state had in its possession. We had uncovered so much exculpatory evidence that had not been disclosed previously that we were sure there was still more that had not been turned over. The judge finally told us that we were fishing after we'd made our ninth or tenth request for more police and prosecution files. I suspect that Judge Norton had scheduled the final Rule 32 hearing in part because he wanted to get this contentious, complicated case off his docket and out of his court. In the last pretrial appearance, the judge had asked, How much time will you need to present your evidence, Mr. Stevenson? We'd like to reserve a week, Your Honor. A week? You've got to be joking. For a Rule 32 hearing? The trial in this case only lasted a day and a half. Yes, sir, we believe this is an extraordinary case, and there are several witnesses, and three days, Mr. Stevenson. If you can't make your case in three days after all of this drama you've stirred up, you don't really have anything. Judge, I adjourned. After spending another long day in Monroeville tracking down a few final witnesses, Michael and I went back to the office to plot out how to present all of the evidence in the narrow amount of time the judge was giving us. We needed to make the complexity of the case and the multiple ways that Walter's rights had been violated coherent and understandable to the judge. Another concern was Myers and his love of fantastical narration, so we sat down with him a few days before the hearing and tried to make it as plain as possible. No long excursions about police corruption, I said. Just answer the questions accurately and honestly, Ralph. I always do, Ralph said confidently. Wait, did you just say you always do? Michael asked. What are you talking about, you always do? Ralph, you lied through your ass the entire trial. That's what we're going to expose at this hearing. I know, Meyer said coolly. I meant I always tell y'all the truth. Don't freak me out, Ralph. Just testify truthfully, Michael said. Ralph had been calling our office almost daily with an unending stream of strange thoughts, ideas, and conspiracies. I was frequently too busy to talk to him, so Michael had been fielding most of the calls and had become increasingly worried about Ralph's unique perspective on the world. But we could do no more about it. We arrived at the courthouse the morning of the hearing early and anxious. We were both dressed in dark suits, white shirts, and muted ties. I usually dressed as conservatively as possible for court. I was a young, bearded black man, and even when there was no jury, I still tried to meet the court's expectation of what a lawyer looked like, if only for the sake of my clients. We first went to check on Myers to make sure he had arrived safely and was in a stable state of mind before the hearing began. The Baldwin County Sheriff's Department deputies had brought Ralph from the prison in St. Clair County to the courthouse the night before the hearing. The five-hour trip through the nighttime roads of southern Alabama had clearly unnerved Ralph. We met with him in his holding cell. He was palpably anxious. Worse, he was quiet and reserved, which was even more unusual. After we finished that unsettling meeting, I went to see Walter, who was also at the courthouse in one of the holding cells. 
Being back at the courthouse where his fate had seemingly been sealed four years earlier had shaken him as well, but he forced himself to smile when I walked in. Was the trip okay? I asked. Everything is good, just hoping for something better than the last time I was here. I nodded sympathetically and reviewed with him what I thought would unfold over the next few days. The holding cells for prisoners were in the basement of the courthouse, and after meeting with Walter I made my way upstairs to get ready for court to begin. When I walked into the courtroom, I was shocked by what I saw. Dozens of people from the community, mostly black and poor, had packed the viewing area. On both sides of the hearing room, people from Walter's family, people who had attended the fish fry on the day of the crime, people we'd interviewed over the past several months, people who knew Walter from working with him, even Sam Crook and his posse, were crammed into the courtroom. Minnie and Armilla smiled as I walked into court. Tom Chapman then walked in with Don Valeska, and they both scanned the room. I could tell from the looks on their faces that they were unhappy about the crowd. Tate, Larry Eichner, and Benson, the law enforcement team primarily responsible for Walter's prosecution, piled in behind the prosecutors and sat down in the courtroom as well. A deputy sheriff escorted the parents of Rhonda Morrison to the front of the court just before the hearing began. When the judge took the bench, the crowd of black faces noisily rose as one and sat back down. Many of the black community members looked dressed for church. The men were in suits, and some of the women wore hats. It took them a few seconds to settle into silence, which seemed to annoy Judge Norton. But I was energized by their presence and happy for Walter that so many people had come out to support him. Judge Norton was a balding white man in his fifties. He wasn't a tall man, but the elevated bench made him as imposing as any judge. He had managed some of our earlier preliminary hearings in a suit, but today he was in his robe, gavel firmly in hand. Gentlemen, are we ready to proceed? Judge Norton asked. We are, Your Honor, I replied, but we intend to call several of the law enforcement officers present in the courtroom, and I would like to invoke the rule of sequestration. In criminal cases, witnesses who will be testifying are required to sit outside the courtroom so they can't alter their testimony based on what other witnesses say. Valeska was on his feet immediately. No, Judge, that's not going to happen. These are the investigators who figured out this heinous crime, and we need them in court to present our case. I stayed on my feet. The state doesn't bear the burden of presenting a case in these proceedings, Your Honor. We do. This isn't a criminal trial, but a post-conviction evidentiary hearing. Judge, they're the ones that are trying to retry this case, and we need our people inside, Valeska countered. The judge jumped in with, Well, it does sound like you're trying to retry the case, Mr. Stevenson, so I'm going to allow the state to keep the crime investigators in the courtroom. It was not a good start. I decided to proceed with an opening statement before calling Myers as our first witness. I wanted the judge to understand that we weren't simply defending Mr. McMillan from a different angle than his original lawyers. I wanted him to know that we had dramatic new evidence of innocence that exonerated Walter, and that justice demanded his immediate release. We wouldn't succeed if the judge didn't know how to hear the evidence. Your Honor, the state's case against Walter McMillan turned entirely on the testimony of Ralph Myers.
who had several prior felony convictions and another capital murder case pending against him in Escambia County at the time of Mr. McMillan's trial. At trial, Mr. McMillan asserted that he is innocent and that he did not know Mr. Myers at the time of this crime. He has maintained his innocence throughout these proceedings. The judge had been fidgeting and had seemed distracted when I started, so I paused. Even if he didn't agree, I wanted him to hear what I was saying. I stopped talking until I was sure that he was paying close attention. Finally, he made eye contact with me, so I continued. There is no question that Walter McMillan was convicted of capital murder based on the testimony of Ralph Myers. There was no other evidence to establish Mr. McMillan's guilt for capital murder at trial other than Myers' testimony. The state had no physical evidence linking Mr. McMillan to this crime. The state had no motive. The state had no witnesses to the crime. The state had only the testimony of Ralph Myers. At trial, Myers testified that he was unknowingly and unwillingly made part of a capital murder and robbery on November 1, 1986, when Walter McMillan saw him at a car wash and asked him to drive McMillan's truck because his arm hurt. Myers stated that he drove Mr. McMillan to Jackson Cleaners, subsequently went into the cleaners, and saw McMillan with a gun, placing money in a brown bag. Another man, who was white, was also present in the cleaners. Myers testified this man had black-gray hair and allegedly talked to McMillan. Myers asserted that he was shoved and threatened by Mr. McMillan when he went into the cleaners. The mysterious third person, who is circumstantially presumed to be in charge, allegedly instructed McMillan to get rid of Myers, which Mr. McMillan said he couldn't do because he was out of bullets. The white man in charge has never been identified or arrested by the state. The state has not been looking for a third person, a ringleader for this crime, because I think they recognize that this person doesn't exist. I paused again to let the meaning of this sink in. Based on the testimony of Ralph Myers, Walter McMillan was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. As you're about to hear, the testimony of Ralph Myers was completely false. Again, Your Honor, the testimony of Ralph Myers at trial was completely false. I took a moment before turning to the bailiff to call Myers to the stand. The courtroom was silent until the deputy opened the door to the holding area and Ralph Myers walked into the courtroom. There was an audible reaction to his presence. Ralph had aged visibly since the last time many of the people in the courtroom had seen him. I could hear murmurs about how his hair had grayed. Dressed in his prison whites, Myers once again appeared small and sad to me as he climbed up onto the witness stand. He looked around the courtroom nervously before raising his hand and swearing an oath to tell the truth. I waited until the courtroom became quiet. Judge Norton was looking at Myers attentively. I walked over to begin my examination. After asking him to state his name for the record and establishing that he had previously appeared in court and testified against Walt McMillan, it was time to get to the heart of things. I walked closer to the witness stand. Mr. Myers, was the testimony that you gave at Mr. McMillan's trial true? I was hoping that the judge couldn't see I was holding my breath, waiting for Ralph to answer. 
Ralph looked at me coolly, but then spoke very clearly and confidently. Not at all. There was more murmuring in the courtroom now, but the crowd quickly quieted to hear more. Not at all, I repeated before continuing. I wanted Ralph's recantation to sink in, but I didn't want to hesitate too long because we needed a lot more. Did you see Mr. McMillan on the day that Rhonda Morrison was murdered? Absolutely not. Ralph looked steady as he spoke. Did you drive his truck into Monroeville on that day? Absolutely not. Did you go into Jackson Cleaners when Rhonda Morrison was murdered? No, never did. I didn't want the court to think that Ralph was robotically denying everything I asked him, so I asked a question that required an affirmative answer. Now, at Mr. McMillan's trial, did you give some testimony that there was a white man inside the cleaners when you went inside? Yes, I did. I had gone as long as I dared asking Ralph yes, no questions. What was that testimony, please? As I can recall, the testimony was that I had overheard Walter McMillan saying something to this guy, and I had also recalled saying that I had seen the back part of his head, but that's just about all I can recall on that. Was that testimony true, Mr. Myers? No, it wasn't. Now the judge leaned in to listen with rapt attention. Were any of the allegations you made against Walter McMillan as being involved in the Rhonda Morrison murder true? Ralph paused and looked around the courtroom before he answered. For the first time, there was emotion in his voice, regret or remorse. No. It seemed that everyone in the courtroom had been holding their breath, but now there was an audible buzz from many of Walter's supporters. I had a copy of the trial transcript and took Ralph through every sentence of his testimony against Walter. Statement by statement, he acknowledged that his previous testimony was entirely false. Myers was direct and persuasive. He would frequently turn his head to look Judge Norton directly in the eye as he spoke. When I made him repeat the parts of his testimony about being coerced to testify falsely, Ralph remained calm and conveyed absolute sincerity. Even during the lengthy cross-examination by Chapman, Myers was unwavering. After relentless questioning about why he was changing his testimony and Chapman's suggestion that someone was putting him up to this, Ralph became indignant. He looked at the prosecutor and said, Me? I can simply look in your face and anybody else's face dead eye to eyeball and tell you that that's all I, anything that was told about Macmillan was a lie. As far as I know, Macmillan didn't have anything to do with this because on the day, on the day they say this happened, I didn't even see Macmillan. And that's exactly what I told lots of people. On redirect examination, I asked Ralph to acknowledge once again that his trial testimony was false and that he had knowingly put an innocent man on death row. Then I took a moment and walked over to the defense table to make sure I hadn't forgotten anything. I reviewed my notes and then glanced at Michael. Are we okay? Michael looked astonished. Ralph was great. He was really, really great. I looked at Walter and only then realized that his eyes were moist. He was shaking his head from side to side in disbelief. I put my hand on his shoulder before announcing to the court that Myers could be excused. We had no further questions. Myers stood up to leave the courtroom. 
As the deputies led him to a side door, he looked apologetically at Walter before being escorted out. I'm not sure Walter saw him. People in the courtroom started whispering again. I heard one of Walter's relatives, in a muted tone, say, Thank you, Jesus. The next challenge was to rebut the testimony of Bill Hooks and Joe Hightower, who had claimed to see Walter's modified lowrider truck pulling out from the cleaners about the time Rhonda Morrison was murdered. I called Clay Cast to the stand. The white mechanic testified that McMillan's truck was not a lowrider in November 1986 when Rhonda Morrison was murdered. Cast had records and clearly remembered modifying Walter's truck in May 1987, over six months after the day when Hooks and Hightower claimed they'd seen a lowrider truck at the cleaners. We finished the day with Woodrow Eichner, a Monroeville police officer who testified that he was the first on the scene and that the body of Rhonda Morrison was not where Myers had testified it was. Eichner said it was clear from his observation of the murder scene that Morrison had been shot in the back after a struggle that had started in the bathroom and ended in the rear of the cleaners, where the body was found. Eichner's description of the scene contradicted the assertion that Myers had made at trial about seeing Morrison near the front counter. More significantly, Eichner testified that he'd been asked by Pearson, the trial prosecutor, to testify that Morrison's body had been dragged through the store from the front counter to the spot where it was found. Eichner was indignant on the stand as he recalled the conversation. He knew that such testimony would be false, and he told the prosecutors that he refused to lie. He was soon after discharged from the police department. Evidentiary hearings, like jury trials, can be exhausting. I had done the direct examination of all of the witnesses and was surprised when I realized that it was already 5 p.m. The hearing was going well. I was excited and energized to be able, finally, to lay out all of the evidence proving Walter's innocence. I kept an eye on Judge Norton to make sure he was still engaged, and he seemed visibly affected by the proceedings. I believed the concerned look on his face revealed confusion about what he was going to do in light of this evidence, and I considered the judge's newfound confusion and concern to be real progress. All of the witnesses we called during the first day were white, and none had any loyalties to Walter McMillan. It seemed that Judge Norton had not expected that. When Clay Cast acknowledged that the truck the state witnesses described as a lowrider wasn't modified until close to seven months after the crime took place, the judge furiously scribbled notes, the worry lines on his face deepening. When Woodrow Eichner announced that he had been fired for trying to be honest about the evidence against McMillan, the judge seemed shaken. This was the first evidence we presented that suggested that people in law enforcement had been so focused on convicting Walter that they were prepared to ignore or even hide evidence that contradicted their case. After Woodrow Eichner completed his testimony, it was deep into the afternoon. The judge looked at the clock and called it a day. I wanted to keep going to continue until midnight if necessary, but I realized that wasn't going to happen. I walked over to Walter. We have to stop now? he asked worriedly. Yes, but we'll just pick up and keep going tomorrow morning. I smiled at him, and I was pleased when he smiled back. Walter looked at me excitedly. Man, I can't tell you how I'm feeling right now. 
All this time I've been waiting for the truth and been hearing nothing but lies. Right now feels... incredible. I... I just... A uniformed deputy walked over and interrupted us. We need to take him back to the holding cell. You'll have to talk there. The middle-aged white officer seemed provoked. I didn't pay it much attention and told Walter I'd come down later. As people filed out of the courtroom, you could see hope growing among Walter's family. They came up to me and gave me hugs. Walter's sister, Armilla, his wife, Minnie, and his nephew, Giles, were all talking excitedly about the evidence we'd presented. When we got back to the hotel, Michael was pumped up, too. Chapman should just call you and say he wants to drop the charges against Walter and let him go home. Let's not hold our breath waiting for that call, I replied. Chapman had seemed troubled as we left the courthouse. I still had some hope that he might turn around on this and even help us, but we definitely couldn't plan on that. I arrived at the courthouse early the next morning to visit Walter in his basement cell before the proceedings began. When I headed upstairs, I was confused to see a throng of black folks sitting outside the courtroom in the courthouse lobby. It was just about time for the proceedings to begin. I went up to Armilla, who was sitting with the others outside the courtroom, and she looked at me with concern. What's wrong? I asked. Why aren't y'all inside the courtroom? I looked around the lobby. If there had been a huge crowd yesterday, today's hearing had brought more people, including several clergy members and older people of color I'd never seen before. They won't let us in, Mr. Stevenson. What do you mean they won't let you in? We tried to go in earlier, and they told us we couldn't come in. A young man in a deputy sheriff's uniform was standing in front of the entrance to the courtroom. I walked over to him, and he put his arm up to stop me. I want to go into the courtroom, I said firmly. You can't come in. What do you mean I can't come in? There's a hearing scheduled, and I want to go inside. I'm sorry, sir. You can't come into the courtroom. Why not? I asked. He stood there silently. Finally, I added, I'm the defense attorney. I think I have to be able to go inside the courtroom. He looked at me closely and was clearly perplexed. Um, I don't know. I'll have to go and check. He disappeared inside the courtroom. He came back a few moments later and grinned at me tentatively. Um, you can come in. I pushed by the deputy, opened the door, and saw that the entire courtroom had been altered. Inside the courtroom door, they had placed a large metal detector, on the other side of which was an enormous German shepherd held back by a police officer. The courtroom was already half-filled. The benches that had been filled by Walter supporters the previous day were now mostly occupied by older white people. Clearly the people here were supporting the Morrisons and the prosecution. Chapman and Valeska were already sitting at the prosecutor's table, acting as if nothing was going on. I was livid. I walked over to Chapman. Who told the deputies not to let the folks outside come into the courtroom? I asked. They looked at me as if they didn't know what I was talking about. I'm going to speak to the judge about this. I spun on my heel and went directly to the judge's chambers, and the prosecutors followed me. When I explained to Judge Norton that McMillan's family and supporters had been told that they couldn't come into the courtroom, even though the state's supporters had been let in, the judge rolled his eyes and looked annoyed. Mr. Stevenson, your people will just have to get here earlier, he said dismissively. 
Judge, the problem isn't that they weren't here early. The problem is that they were told they couldn't come into the courtroom. No one is being denied entrance into the courtroom, Mr. Stevenson. He turned to his bailiff who left the room. I followed the bailiff and saw him whisper something to the deputy outside the courtroom. Macmillan's supporters would be led into the courtroom now that half the courtroom was already filled. I walked over to where two ministers had assembled all of Walter's supporters and tried to explain the situation. I'm sorry, everyone, I said. They've done something really inappropriate today. They'll let you in now, but the courtroom is already half filled with people here to support the state. There won't be enough seats for everyone. One of the ministers, a heavy-set African-American man dressed in a dark suit with a large cross around his neck, walked over to me. Mr. Stevenson, it's okay. Please don't worry about us. We'll have a few people be our representatives today, and we will be here even earlier tomorrow. We won't let nobody turn us around, sir. The ministers began selecting people to be representatives in the courtroom. They told Minnie, Armilla, Walter's children, and several others to go on in. When the ministers called out Mrs. Williams, everyone seemed to smile. Mrs. Williams, an older black woman, stood up and prepared herself to enter the courtroom. She took great care in fixing her hair just right. On top of her gray hair, she wore a small hat whose placement she precisely adjusted. She then pulled out a long blue scarf that she delicately wrapped around her neck. Only then did she slowly begin to make her way to the courtroom door, where the line of Macmillan supporters had formed. I found her dignified ritual riveting, but when the spell was broken, I realized that I needed to get going myself. I hadn't spent the morning preparing for witnesses as I had intended, but had instead been drawn into this foolish mistreatment of Macmillan's supporters. I walked past the line of patient people and went inside to begin preparing for the hearing. I was standing at counsel's table when, out of the corner of my eye, I saw that Mrs. Williams had made it to the courtroom door. She was quite elegant in her hat and scarf. She wasn't a large woman, but there was something commanding about her presence. I couldn't help but watch her as she moved carefully through the doorway toward the metal detector. She walked more slowly than everyone else, but she held her head high with an undeniable grace and dignity. She reminded me of older women I'd been around all my life, women whose lives were hard but who remained kind and dedicated themselves to building and sustaining their communities. Mrs. Williams glanced at the available rows to see where she would sit, and then turned to walk through the metal detector, and that's when she saw the dog. I watched all her composure fall away, replaced by a look of absolute fear. Her shoulders dropped, her body sagged, and she seemed paralyzed. For over a minute, she stood there, frozen, and then her body began to tremble and then shake noticeably. I heard her groan. Tears were running down her face, and she began to shake her head sadly. I kept watching until she turned around and quickly walked out of the courtroom. I felt my own mood shift. I didn't know exactly what had happened to Mrs. Williams, but I knew that here in Alabama... Police dogs and black folks looking for justice had never mixed well. I was trying to shake off the dark feeling that the morning's events had conjured when the officers brought Walter into the courtroom. 
Because there was no jury, the judge had not permitted me to give him street clothes to wear, so Walter was wearing his prison uniform. They allowed him to be in the courtroom without handcuffs, but had insisted on keeping his ankle shackled. Michael and I conferred briefly about the order of witnesses as the rest of Macmillan's family and supporters slowly filed through the metal detector, past the dog, and into the courtroom. Despite the state's early morning maneuvers and the bad omen of the dog and Mrs. Williams, we had another good day in court. Evidence from the state mental health workers, who had dealt with Myers after he initially refused to testify in the first trial and was sent to the Taylor Hardin Secure Medical Facility for evaluation, confirmed Myers' testimony from the day before. Dr. Omar Mahabit explained that Myers had told him, then, that the police had framed him to accept the penalty for the murder case that he is accused of or to testify that the man did. Mohabit reported that Myers categorically denied having anything to do with the alleged crime. He claimed, I don't know the name of this girl, I don't know the time of the alleged crime, I don't know the date of the alleged crime, I don't know the place of the alleged crime. Mohabit testified that Myers had told him, quote, They told me to say what they wanted me to say. End quote. Evidence from other doctors further confirmed this testimony. Dr. Norman Poitras from Taylor Hardin explained that Myers had told him that his prior confessions are bogus and were coerced out of him by the police through keeping him physically and psychologically isolated. We presented evidence from Taylor Hardin staffer Dr. Kamal Naji, who said that Myers had told him of another murder that occurred in 1986 where a girl was shot in the laundromat. He said that the police, and also my lawyer, want me to say that I had driven these people to the laundromat and that they shot the girl, but I won't do it. Myers also told Naji, they threatened me. They want me to say what they want to hear, and if I don't, then they tell me, you're going to the electric chair. We had evidence from a fourth doctor to whom Myers confided that he was being pressured to give false testimony against Walter McMillan. Dr. Bernard Bryant testified that Myers told him, quote, he did not commit the crime and that at the time he was incarcerated for the crime, he was threatened and harassed by the local police authorities into confessing he committed a crime, end quote. We emphasized to the court throughout the day's hearing that all of these statements were made by Myers before the initial trial. Not only did these statements make Myers' recantation more credible, but they had also been documented in medical records that had never been turned over to Walter's trial lawyers, as the law required. The U.S. Supreme Court has long required that the prosecution disclose to the defendant anything that is exculpatory or that may be helpful to the defendant in impeaching a witness. The supporters whom the state had brought to court and the victim's family seemed confused by the evidence we were presenting. It complicated the simple narrative they had fully embraced about Walter's guilt and the need for swift and certain punishment. State supporters began to leave the courtroom as the day went on, and the number of black people who were led into the room grew. By the end of that second day, I felt very hopeful. We had maintained a good pace, and the cross-examinations had been shorter than I had expected. I thought we could finish our case in one more day. I was tired but feeling pleased as I walked to my car that evening. To my surprise, I noticed Mrs. Williams sitting outside the courthouse on a bench, alone. She stood when our eyes met. 
I walked over, remembering how unsettled I had been to see her leave the courtroom. Mrs. Williams, I'm so sorry they did what they did this morning. They should not have done it, and I'm very sorry if they upset you. But so you know, things went well today. I feel like we had a good day. Attorney Stevenson, I feel so bad. I feel so bad, she said and grabbed my hand. I should have come into that courtroom this morning. I was supposed to be in that courtroom this morning, she said and began to weep. Miss Williams, it's all right, I said. They shouldn't have done what they did. Please don't worry about it. I put my arm around her and gave her a hug. No, 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 Attorney Stevenson. I was meant to be in that courtroom. I was supposed to be in that courtroom. It's okay, Mrs. Williams, it's okay. No, sir, I was supposed to be there, and I wanted to be there. I tried. I tried. Lord knows I tried, Mr. Stevenson. But when I saw that dog... She shook her head and stared away with a distant look. When I saw that dog... I thought about 1965 when we gathered at the Eben Pettus Bridge in Selma and tried to march for our voting rights. They beat us and put those dogs on us. She looked back to me sadly. I tried to move, Attorney Stevenson. I wanted to move, but I just couldn't do it. As she spoke, it seemed like a world of sadness surrounded her. She let go of my hand and walked away. I watched her get into a car with some other people I had seen in the courtroom earlier. I drove back to the motel in a more somber mood to start preparing for the last day of hearings. I arrived at the court early the next morning to make sure that there were no problems. As it turned out, very few people showed up to support the state. And though the metal detector and the dog were still there... No deputy stood at the door to block black people from entering the courtroom. Inside the courtroom, I noticed one of the women I'd seen leave with Mrs. Williams the night before. She came up to me and introduced herself as Mrs. Williams' daughter. She thanked me for trying to console her mother. When she got home last night, she was so upset. She didn't need anything. She didn't speak to anybody. She just went to her bedroom. We could hear her praying all night long. This morning she called the reverend and begged him for another chance to be a community representative at the hearing. She was up when I got out of bed, dressed and ready to come to court. I told her she didn't have to come, but she wouldn't hear none of it. She's been through a lot, and, well, on the trip down here she just kept saying over and over, Lord, I can't be scared of no dog. I can't be scared of no dog. I was apologizing again to the daughter for what the court officials had done the day before when suddenly there was a commotion at the courtroom door. We both looked up, and there stood Mrs. Williams. She was once again dressed impeccably in her scarf and hat. She held her handbag tight at her side and seemed to be swaying at the entrance. I could hear her speaking to herself, repeating over and over again, I ain't scared of no dog. I ain't scared of no dog. I watched as the officers allowed her to move forward. She held her head up as she walked slowly through the metal detector, repeating over and over, I ain't scared of no dog. It was impossible to look away. She made it through the detector and stared at the dog. Then loud enough for everyone to hear, she belted out, I ain't scared of no dog. She moved past the dog and walked into the courtroom. Black folks who were already inside beamed with joy as she passed them. She sat down near the front of the courtroom and turned to me with a broad smile and announced, Attorney Stevenson, I'm here. 
Mrs. Williams, it's good to see you here. Thank you for coming. The courtroom filled up, and I started getting my papers together. They brought Walter into the courtroom, the signal that the hearing was about to begin. That's when I heard Mrs. Williams call my name. No, Attorney Stevenson, you didn't hear me. I said I'm here. She spoke very loudly, and I was a little confused and embarrassed. I turned around and smiled at her. Uh, no, Mrs. Williams, I did hear you, and I'm so glad you're here. When I looked at her, though, it was as if she was in her own world. The courtroom was packed, and the bailiff brought the court to order as the judge walked in. Everyone rose, as is the custom. When the judge took the bench and sat down, everyone else in the courtroom sat down as well. There was an unusually long pause as we all waited for the judge to say something. I noticed people staring at something behind me, and that's when I turned around and saw that Mrs. Williams was still standing. The courtroom got very quiet. All eyes were on her. I tried to gesture to her that she should sit, but then she leaned her head back and shouted, I'm here! People chuckled nervously as she took her seat, but when she looked at me, I saw tears in her eyes. In that moment, I felt something peculiar, a deep sense of recognition. I smiled now because I knew she was saying to the room, I may be old, I may be poor, I may be black, but I'm here. I'm here because I've got this vision of justice that compels me to be a witness. I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. I'm here because you can't keep me away. I smiled at Mrs. Williams while she sat proudly. For the first time since I started working on the case, everything we were struggling to achieve finally seemed to make sense. It took me a minute to realize that the judge was calling my name and patiently asking me to begin. The last day of hearings went well. There were a half-dozen people who had been jailed or in prison with Ralph Myers, whom Ralph had told he was being pressured to give false testimony against Walter McMillan. We found most of them and had them testify. They were consistent in what they related. Isaac Daly, who had been falsely accused by Myers of committing the Pittman murder, explained how Myers had falsely implicated Walter in the Pittman crime. Myers had confided to Daly after he was arrested that he and Karen had discussed pinning the Pittman murder on Walter. He related to us that he and Karen did the killing and uh, plotted together to put it off on Johnny D., Another inmate who wrote letters for Myers at the Monroe County Jail explained that Myers didn't know McMillan, had no knowledge of the Morrison murder, and was being pressured by police to testify falsely against McMillan. We saved the most powerful evidence for the end. The tapes that Tate, Benson, and Eichner had made when they interrogated Myers were pretty dramatic. The multiple recorded statements Myers gave to the police featured Myers repeatedly telling the police that he didn't know anything about the Morrison murder or Walter McMillan. They included the officer's threats against Myers and Myers' resistance to framing an innocent man for murder. Not only did the tapes confirm Myers' recantation and contradict his trial testimony, they exposed the lie that Pearson had told the court, the jury, and McMillan's trial counsel that there were only two statements provided by Myers. In fact, Myers gave at least six additional statements to the police that were largely consistent with his testimony at the Rule 32 hearing that he had no information about Walter McMillan committing the Rhonda Morrison murder.
All of these recorded statements were typed, exculpatory, and favorable to Walter McMillan, and none of them had been disclosed to McMillan's attorneys as was required. I called on McMillan's trial lawyers, Bruce Boynton and J.L. Chestnut, to testify about how much more they could have done to win an acquittal if the state had turned over the evidence it had suppressed. We finished the presentation of our evidence, and to our surprise, the state put on no rebuttal case. I didn't know what they could have presented to rebut our evidence, but I assumed they would present something. The judge seemed surprised, too. He paused and then said he wanted the parties to submit written briefs, arguing what ruling he should make. We had hoped for this, and I was relieved that the court would give us time to explain the significance of all the evidence in writing and assist him in preparing his order, an order I hoped would set Walter free. At the end of three days of intense litigation, the judge adjourned the proceedings in the late afternoon. Michael and I had been in a rush the final morning of the hearing and hadn't checked out of our hotel before leaving the courthouse. We said our farewells to the family in the courtroom and went back to the hotel, feeling exhausted but satisfied. Bay Manette, where the hearing took place, is about 30 minutes from the beautiful beaches on the Gulf of Mexico. We had started a tradition of bringing our staff down to the beach each September and we'd all fallen in love with the clear, warm waters of the Gulf. The white sand and pleasantly underdeveloped beachfront were spectacular and soothing. The view was slightly spoiled by the massive offshore oil rigs you could see in the distance, but if you could make yourself forget about them, you'd think you were in paradise. Dolphins loved this part of the Gulf and could be spotted in the early mornings, playfully making their way through the water. I'd often thought we should move our office to right there on the beach. It was Michael's idea to hit the beach before heading back to Montgomery. I wasn't sure it was a good idea, but the day was warm and the coast was so close, I couldn't resist. We jumped in the car, trailing the last hours of sunlight to the beautiful shores near Fort Morgan, Alabama. As soon as we got there, Michael changed from his suit to swim trunks and went sprinting into the ocean. I was too tired to race into the sea, so I put on some shorts and sat down at the water's edge. It would soon be dusk, but the heat persisted. My head was full of everything that had transpired in court. I was replaying what witnesses had said and worrying about whether things had gone exactly right. I was trawling through every detail in my mind, every possible misstep, until I caught myself. It was over. There was no point in making myself crazy by overthinking it now. I decided to dive into the ocean and, for a moment at least, forget it all. Recently, stranded at the airport with nothing else to read, I'd read an article about shark attacks. As I approached the waves at Fort Morgan, now lit by the sunset, I remembered that sharks feed at dusk and at dawn. I watched Michael swimming far offshore, and as fun as it looked, I knew I'd be the more vulnerable target if a shark showed up. Michael swam like a fish while I barely stayed afloat. Michael waved at me and shouted, B-Man, come on out! I cautiously ventured into the water far enough to explain my concerns about sharks to him. He laughed at me. The water felt warm and wonderful, comforting in a way I hadn't expected. A school of fish zipped by my legs and I stared at them in wonder until I realized that they might be fleeing some larger predator. I carefully made my way back to the shore. I sat on the sandy shore and watched the brilliant white pelicans 
gliding effortlessly over the still waters in search of food. Small fiddler crabs scurried around me, too fearful to get close but curious enough to linger nearby. I thought about Walter making his way back to Holman, shackled in the back of that van again. I wanted him to be hopeful but grounded enough to manage whatever the court decided. I thought about his family and all the people who had come to court. They'd kept the faith through the five years that had passed since Walter was first arrested, and now they had cause to feel energized and encouraged. I thought about Mrs. Williams. She had come up to me after the hearings and had given me a sweet kiss on the cheek. I told her how happy I was she'd come back to court. She looked at me playfully. Attorney Stevenson, you know I was going to be here, and you know I wasn't going to let these people keep me out. Her words had made me smile. Michael got out of the water looking worried. What did you see, I joked. Shark? Eel? Poisonous jellyfish? Stingray? Piranha? He was out of breath. They've threatened us? Lied to us? There are people who have told us that some folks in the county are so unnerved by what we're doing they're going to kill us. What do you think they're going to do now that they know how much evidence we have to prove Walter's innocence? I had given this some thought, too. Our opponents had done everything they could to frame Walter in order to kill him. They'd lied to us and subverted the judicial process. More than a few people had passed on to us that they'd heard angry people in the community making threats on our lives because they believed we were trying to help a guilty murderer get off death row. I don't know, I told Michael, but we have to press on, man. We've got to press on. We both sat there in silence, watching the sun fade into darkness. More fiddler crabs emerged from their holes, scurrying crazily and getting closer to where we sat. I turned to Michael in the approaching darkness. We should go. Chapter 10 Mitigation America's prisons have become warehouses for the mentally ill. Mass incarceration has been largely fueled by misguided drug policy and excessive sentencing, but the internment of hundreds of thousands of poor and mentally ill people has been a driving force in achieving our record levels of imprisonment. It's created unprecedented problems. I first met Avery Jenkins over the telephone. He called me, but he was pretty incoherent. He couldn't explain what he had been convicted of or even clearly describe what he wanted me to do. He complained about the conditions of his confinement until a random thought caused him to abruptly switch topics. He sent letters, too, but they were just as hard to follow as his phone calls, so I decided to speak with him in person to see if I could make better sense of how to help. For over a century, institutional care for Americans suffering from serious mental illness shifted between prisons and hospitals set up to manage people with mental illness. In the late 19th century, alarmed by the inhumane treatment of incarcerated people suffering from mental illness, Dorothea Dix and Reverend Lewis Dwight led a successful campaign to get the mentally ill out of prison. The numbers of incarcerated people with serious mental illness declined dramatically, while public and private mental health facilities emerged to provide care to the mentally distressed. State mental hospitals were soon everywhere. By the middle of the 20th century, abuses within mental institutions generated a lot of attention, and involuntary confinement of people became a significant problem, 
Families, teachers, and courts were sending thousands to institutions for eccentricities that were less attributable to acute mental illness than resistance to social, cultural, or sexual norms. People who were gay, resisted gender norms, or engaged in interracial dating often found themselves involuntarily committed. The introduction of antipsychotic medications like Thorazine. Held great promise for many people suffering from some severe mental health disorders, but the drug was overused in many mental institutions, resulting in terrible side effects and abuses. Aggressive and violent treatment protocols at some facilities generated horror stories that fueled a new campaign, this time to get people out of institutional mental health settings. In the 1960s and 1970s. Laws were enacted to make involuntary commitment much more difficult. Deinstitutionalization became the objective in many states. Mental health advocates and lawyers succeeded in winning a series of Supreme Court cases that forced states to transfer institutional residents to community programs. Legal rulings empowered people with developmental disabilities to refuse treatment. And created rights for the mentally disabled that made forced institutionalization much less common. By the 1990s, several states had a deinstitutionalization rate of over 95 percent, meaning that for every hundred patients who had been residents in state hospitals before deinstitutionalization programs, fewer than five were residents when the study was conducted in the 1990s. In 1955, there was one psychiatric bed for every 300 Americans. Fifty years later, it was one bed for every three thousand. While these reforms were desperately needed, deinstitutionalization intersected with the spread of mass imprisonment policies, expanding criminal statutes and harsh sentencing to disastrous effect. The free world became perilous for deinstitutionalized poor people suffering from mental disabilities. The inability of many disabled, low-income people to receive treatment. Or necessary medication dramatically increased their likelihood of a police encounter that would result in jail or prison time. Jail and prison became the state's strategy for dealing with a health crisis created by drug use and dependency. A flood of mentally ill people headed to prison for minor offenses and drug crimes, or simply for behaviors their communities were unwilling to tolerate. Today, over 50 percent of prison and jail inmates in the United States. Have a diagnosed mental illness, a rate nearly five times greater than that of the general adult population. Nearly one in five prison and jail inmates has a serious mental illness. In fact, there are more than three times the number of seriously mentally ill individuals in jail or prison than in hospitals. In some states, that number is ten times. And prison is a terrible place for someone with mental illness or a neurological disorder that prison guards are not trained to understand. For instance, when I still worked in Atlanta, our office sued Louisiana's notorious Angola prison for refusing to modify a policy that required prisoners in segregation cells to place their hands through bars for handcuffing before officers entered to move them. Disabled prisoners with epilepsy and seizure disorders would sometimes need assistance while convulsing in their cells, and because they couldn't put their hands through the bars, guards would mace them or use fire extinguishers to subdue them. This intervention aggravated the health problems of the prisoners and sometimes resulted in death. Most overcrowded prisons don't have the capacity to provide care and treatment to the mentally ill. 
The lack of treatment makes compliance with the myriad rules that define prison life impossible for many disabled people. Other prisoners exploit or react violently to the behavioral symptoms of the mentally ill. Frustrated prison staff frequently subject them to abusive punishment, solitary confinement, or the most extreme forms of available detention. Many judges, prosecutors, and defense lawyers do a poor job of recognizing the special needs of the mentally disabled, which leads to wrongful convictions, lengthier prison terms, and high rates of recidivism. I once represented a mentally ill man on Alabama's death row named George Daniel. George had suffered brain damage in a car accident that knocked him unconscious late one night in Houston, Texas. When he woke up, he was in an upside-down car on the side of the road. He went home that night and never sought medical assistance. His girlfriend later told his family that at first he just seemed a little off. Then he started hallucinating and exhibiting increasingly bizarre and erratic behavior. He stopped sleeping regularly. Complained about hearing voices and on two occasions ran out of the house naked because he thought he was being chased by wasps. Within a week of the accident, he had stopped speaking in sentences. Just before his mother, who lived in Montgomery, was summoned to help persuade him to go to a hospital, George boarded a Greyhound bus in the middle of the night. He traveled as far as the money he had in his pocket would take him. Disoriented and uncommunicative. He was forced off the bus in Hertzboro, Alabama, after unnerving some passengers by talking loudly to himself and gesturing wildly at objects he imagined were flying around him. The bus had gone through Montgomery, where he had family, but he stayed on until he was thrown off, with no money, and wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and no shoes in the middle of January. He wandered around Hertzboro and eventually stopped at a house. He knocked on the door, and when the homeowner opened it. George walked inside without being invited and roamed around until he found the kitchen table where he sat down. The alarmed homeowner called her son, who came and physically removed George from the house. George went to another home owned by an older woman and did the same thing. She called the police. The officer who responded had a reputation for being aggressive. He forcefully removed George from the home. George started resisting while being pulled to the police car. And the two men began wrestling and fell to the ground. The officer pulled his weapon, and the two were grappling over the gun when it discharged, shooting the officer in the stomach. He died from the gunshot wound. George was arrested and charged with capital murder. While in the Russell County Jail, he became acutely psychotic. Officers reported that he wouldn't leave his cell. He was observed eating his own feces. His mother visited him, but he didn't recognize her. He couldn't speak in complete sentences. The two lawyers who were appointed to represent him at his capital trial were primarily concerned that only one of them would be paid the one thousand dollars for out-of-court time that Alabama provided lawyers appointed to capital cases. They began squabbling with each other, and one filed a civil suit against the other about who would claim the money. Meanwhile, the judge sent George to Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa for a competency examination. Ed Seeger, the doctor who examined George, mysteriously concluded that he was not mentally ill but was malingering or faking symptoms of mental illness. Based on that evaluation, the judge allowed the capital murder trial to proceed. George's lawyers bickered with one another, presented no defense, and called no witnesses. 
The state called Dr. Seeger, who persuaded the jury that there was nothing mentally wrong with George, even as he continuously spit in a cup and made loud clucking noises throughout the trial. George's family members were distraught. George had been working at a Pier 1 furniture store in Houston before his car accident. He left town without picking up his check, which had been ready for collection for over two days before his departure. His mother, a poor woman who knew the value of a dollar to someone like George, found this behavior more demonstrative of mental illness than anything else she could point to, and she authorized the lawyers to obtain the unclaimed check in the hope that they could present it at trial to confirm George's confused mental state. The lawyers, who were still bickering over the money, cashed the check to pay themselves instead of using it as evidence. George was convicted and given the death penalty. By the time we at EJI got involved, he had been on death row for several years, moving inexorably toward execution. When I met him, prison doctors were heavily medicating him with psychotropic drugs, which at least stabilized his behavior. It was so abundantly clear that George was mentally ill that it came as no shock when we discovered that the doctor who had examined him at Bryce Hospital was a fraud with no medical training. Dr. Ed Seeger had made up his credentials. He had never graduated from college, but had fooled hospital officials into believing he was a trained physician with expertise in psychiatry. He had masqueraded at the hospital for eight years, conducting competency evaluations on people accused of crimes before his fraud was uncovered. I represented George in his federal court proceedings. There, the state acknowledged that Seeger was an imposter, but wouldn't agree that George was entitled to a new trial. We eventually won a favorable ruling from a federal judge who overturned his conviction and sentence. Because of his mental illness and incompetency, George was never retried or prosecuted. He has been at a mental institution ever since but there are likely hundreds of other people imprisoned after an evaluation by Dr. Seeger, whose convictions have never been reviewed. A lot of my clients on death row have had serious mental illnesses, but it wasn't always obvious that their history of mental illness predated their time in prison, since symptoms of their disabilities could be episodic and were frequently stress-induced. But Avery Jenkins' letters handwritten in print so small I needed a magnifying glass to read them, convinced me that he had been very ill for a long time. I looked up his case and began to piece together his story. It turned out he'd been convicted of the very disturbing and brutal murder of an older man. The multiple stab wounds inflicted on the victim strongly suggested mental illness, but the court records and files never referenced anything about Jenkins suffering from a disability. I thought I'd find out more by meeting him in person. When I pulled into the prison parking lot, I noticed a pickup truck there that looked like a shrine to the Old South. It was completely covered with disturbing bumper stickers, Confederate flag decals, and other troubling images. Confederate flag license plates are everywhere in the South, but some of the bumper stickers were new to me. A lot were about guns and Southern identity. One read... If I'd known it was going to be like this, I'd have picked my own damn cotton. Despite growing up around images of the Confederate South and working in the Deep South for many years, I was pretty shaken by the symbols. 
I'd always been especially interested in the post-Reconstruction era of American history. My grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. She was born in Virginia in the 1880s, after federal troops had been withdrawn, and a reign of violence and terror had begun, designed to deny any political or social rights for African Americans. Her father told her stories of how the recently emancipated black people were essentially re-enslaved. By former Confederate officers and soldiers, who used violence, intimidation, lynching, and peonage to keep African Americans subordinate and marginalized, my grandmother's parents were deeply embittered by how the promise of freedom and equality following slavery ended when white Southern Democrats reclaimed political power through violence. Terrorist groups like the Ku Klux Klan cloaked themselves in the symbols of the Confederate South. To intimidate and victimize thousands of black people, nothing unnerved rural black settlements more than rumors about nearby Klan activity. For a hundred years, any sign of black progress in the South could trigger a white reaction that would invariably invoke Confederate symbols and talk of resistance. Confederate Memorial Day was declared a state holiday in Alabama at the turn of the century, soon after whites rewrote the state constitution to ensure white supremacy. The holiday is still celebrated today. When black veterans returned to the South after World War II, Southern politicians formed a Dixiecrat bloc to preserve racial segregation and white domination out of fear that military service might encourage black veterans to question racial segregation. In the 1950s and 1960s, civil rights activism and new federal laws inspired the same resistance to racial progress. And once again, led to a spike in the use of Confederate imagery. In fact, it was in the 1950s, after racial segregation in public schools was declared unconstitutional in Brown v. Board of Education, that many Southern states erected Confederate flags atop their state government buildings. Confederate monuments, memorials, and imagery proliferated throughout the South during the Civil Rights era. It was during this time that the birthday of Jefferson Davis. The president of the Confederacy was added as a holiday in Alabama. Even today, banks, state offices, and state institutions shut down in his honor. At a pre-trial hearing, I once argued against the exclusion of African Americans from the jury pool. In this particular rural Southern community, the population was about 27 percent black, but African Americans made up only 10 percent of the jury pool. After presenting the data and making my arguments about the unconstitutional exclusion of African Americans, the judge complained loudly, "I'm going to grant your motion, Mr. Stevenson, but I'll be honest. I'm pretty fed up with people always talking about minority rights: African Americans, Mexican Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans. When is someone going to come into my courtroom and protect the rights of Confederate Americans?" The judge had definitely caught me off guard. I wanted to ask if being born in the South or living in Alabama made me a Confederate American, but I thought better of it. I stopped in the prison yard to take a closer look at the truck. I couldn't help walking around it and reading the provocative stickers. I turned back toward the front gate of the prison, trying to regain my focus, but I couldn't make myself indifferent to what I perceived were symbols of racial oppression. I had been to this prison often enough to be familiar to many of the correctional officers. 
but as I entered I was met by a correctional officer I'd never seen before. He was a white man of my height, about six feet tall, with a muscular build. He looked to be in his early forties and wore a short military haircut. He was staring coldly at me with steel-blue eyes. I walked toward the gate that led to the lobby of the visitation room where I expected a routine pat-down before entering the visitation area. The officer stepped in front of me and blocked me from proceeding. "'What are you doing?' he snarled. "'I'm here for a legal visit,' I replied. "'It was scheduled earlier this week. The people in the warden's office have the papers.' I smiled and spoke as politely as I could to diffuse the situation. "'That's fine, that's fine, but you have to be searched first. It was difficult to ignore his clearly hostile attitude, but I did my best. Okay, do you need me to take my shoes off? The hardcore officers would sometimes make me remove my shoes before going inside. You're going to go into that bathroom and take everything off if you expect to get into my prison. I was shocked, but spoke as nicely as I could. Oh, no, sir, I think you might be confused. I'm an attorney. Lawyers don't have to get strip-searched to come in for legal visits. Instead of calming him, this seemed to make him angrier. Look, I don't know who you think you are, but you're not coming into my prison without complying with our security protocols. Now you can get into that bathroom and strip, or you can go back to wherever you came from. I'd had some difficult encounters with officers getting into prisons from time to time, mostly in small county jails or places where I'd never been before, but this was highly unusual. I've been to this prison many times, and I've never been required to submit to a strip search. I don't think this is the procedure, I said more firmly. Well, I don't know and don't care what other people do. This is the protocol I use. I thought about trying to find an assistant warden, but realized that that might be difficult. In any way, an assistant warden would be unlikely to tell an officer he was wrong in front of me. I had driven two hours for this visit and had a very tough schedule over the next three weeks. I wouldn't be able to get back to the prison any time soon if I didn't get in now. I went inside the bathroom and removed my clothes. The officer came in and gave me an unnecessarily aggressive search before mumbling that I was clear. I put my suit back on and walked out. I'd like to get inside the visitation room now. I tried to reclaim some dignity by speaking more forcefully. Well, you have to go back and sign the book. He said it coolly, but he was clearly trying to provoke me. There was a visitation log that the prison used for family visits, but it was not used for legal visits. I'd already signed the attorney book. It would make no sense to sign a second book. Lawyers don't have to sign that book. If you want to come into my prison, you'll sign the book. He seemed to be smirking now. I tried hard to keep my composure. I turned around and went over to the book and signed my name. I walked back to the visitation room and waited. There was a padlock on the glass door that had to be unlocked before I could enter the space where I'd meet my client. The officer finally pulled out his keys to unlock the door. I stood silently, hoping to get inside without more drama. When he opened the door, I stepped forward, but he grabbed my arm to stop me. He lowered his voice as he spoke to me. Hey, man! Did you see a truck out in the visitation yard with a lot of bumper stickers, flags, and a gun rack? I spoke cautiously. Yes, I saw that truck. His face hardened before he spoke. I want you to know that's my truck. He released my arm and allowed me to walk inside the prison. I felt angry at the guard. 
but I was even more irritated by my own powerlessness. I was distracted from my thoughts when the back door of the visitation room opened and Mr. Jenkins was let in by another officer. Jenkins was a short African-American man with close-cropped hair. He grasped my hand with both of his and smiled broadly as he sat down. He seemed unusually happy to see me. Mr. Jenkins, my name is Brian Stevenson. I'm the attorney you spoke. Did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? He spoke quickly. I'm sorry, what did you say? He kept grinning. Did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? I want a chocolate milkshake. The trip, the Confederate truck, the harassment from the guard, and now a request for a milkshake. This was becoming a bizarre day, and I didn't hide my impatience. No, Mr. Jenkins, I didn't bring you a chocolate milkshake. I'm an attorney. I'm here to help you with your case and try to get you a new trial, okay? That's why I'm here. Now I need to ask you some questions and try to understand what's going on. I saw the grin fade quickly from the man's face. I started asking questions and he gave single-word answers, sometimes just grunting out a yes or a no. I realized that he was still thinking about his milkshake. My time with the officer had made me forget how impaired this man might be. I stopped the interview and leaned forward. Mr. Jenkins, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize you wanted me to bring you a chocolate milkshake. If I had known that, I would absolutely have tried. I promise that the next time I come, if they let me bring you in a chocolate milkshake, I'll definitely do it, okay? With that, his smile returned, his mood brightened. His prison records revealed that he often experienced psychotic episodes in which he would scream for hours. He was generally kind and gentle in our meeting, but he was clearly ill. I couldn't understand why his trial records made no reference to mental illness, but after the George Daniel case, nothing surprised me. When I returned to my office, we began a deeper investigation into Mr. Jenkins' background. What we found was heartbreaking. His father had been murdered before he was born and his mother had died of a drug overdose when he was a year old. He'd been in foster care since he was two years old. His time in foster care had been horrific. He'd been in 19 different foster homes before he turned eight. He began showing signs of intellectual disability at an early age. He had cognitive impairments that suggested some organic brain damage and behavioral problems that suggested schizophrenia and other serious mental illness. When he was ten, Avery lived with abusive foster parents whose rigid rules kept him in constant turmoil. He couldn't comply with all the requirements imposed on him, so he was frequently locked in a closet, denied food, and subjected to beatings and other physical abuse. When his behavior didn't improve, his foster mother decided to get rid of him. She took him out into the woods, tied him to a tree, and left him there. He was found in very poor health by hunters three days later. After recovering from serious medical problems relating to his abandonment, he was turned over to authorities who placed him back into foster care. By the time he was 13, he had started abusing drugs and alcohol. By 15, he was having seizures and experiencing psychotic episodes. At 17, he was deemed incapable of management and was left homeless. Avery was in and out of jail until he turned 20, when in the midst of a psychotic episode, he wandered into a strange house, thinking he was being attacked by demons. In the house, he brutally stabbed to death a man he believed to be a demon. His lawyers did no investigation of Mr. Jenkins' history prior to trial, and he was quickly convicted of murder 
and sentenced to death. The prison would not let me bring Mr. Jenkins a milkshake. I tried to explain this to him, but at the start of every visit, he'd ask me if I'd brought one. I'd tell him that I would keep trying. I had to, just to get him to focus on anything else. Months later, we were finally scheduled to go to court with the evidence about his profound mental illness, material that should have been presented at trial. We contended that his attorneys had failed to provide effective assistance of counsel at trial when they didn't uncover Avery's history or present his disabilities as relevant to his criminal culpability and sentence. When I got to the court where the hearing would take place, about a three hour drive from the prison, I went to see Avery in the court's basement holding cell. After going through my usual protocol about the milkshake, I tried to get him to understand what would happen in court. I was concerned that seeing some of the witnesses, people who had dealt with him when he was in foster care, might upset him. The testimony the experts would provide would also be very direct in characterizing his disabilities and illness. I wanted him to understand why we were doing that. He was pleasant and agreeable, as always. When I went upstairs to the courtroom, I spotted the correctional officer who had given me such a hard time when I had first met Avery. I hadn't seen the officer since that initial ugly encounter. I had asked another client about the guard and was told that he had a bad reputation and usually worked the late shift. Most people tried to steer clear of him. He must have been the officer assigned to transport Avery to the hearing, which made me worried about how Avery might have been treated on the trip, but he seemed his usual self. Over the next three days, we presented our evidence about Avery's background. The experts who spoke about Avery's disabilities were terrific. They weren't partial or biased, just very persuasive in detailing how organic brain damage, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder can conspire to create severe mental impairment. They explained that the psychosis and other serious mental health problems that burdened Mr. Jenkins could lead to dangerous behavior, but this behavior was a manifestation of serious illness, not a reflection of his character. We also put forth evidence about the foster care system and how it had failed Avery. Several of the foster parents with whom Avery had been placed were later convicted of sexual abuse and criminal mismanagement of foster children. We discussed how Avery had been passed from one unhappy situation to the next until he was drug addicted and homeless. Several former foster parents admitted to being very frustrated by Avery because they weren't equipped to deal with his serious mental health problems. I argued to the judge that not taking Avery's mental health issues into consideration at trial was as cruel as saying to someone who has lost his legs, You must climb these stairs with no assistance, and if you don't, you're just lazy. Or to say to someone who is blind, You should get across this busy interstate highway unaided, or you're just cowardly. There are hundreds of ways we accommodate physical disabilities, or at least understand them. We get angry when people fail to recognize the need for thoughtful and compassionate assistance when it comes to the physically disabled. But because mental disabilities aren't visible in the same way, we tend to be dismissive of the needs of the disabled and quick to judge their deficits and failures. Brutally murdering someone would, of course, require the state to hold that person accountable and to protect the public. But to completely disregard a person's disability would be unfair in evaluating what degree of culpability to assign and what sentence to impose. I went back home feeling very good about the hearing. 
but the truth was that a state post-conviction hearing rarely resulted in a favorable ruling. If relief was to come, it would most likely be on appeal. I wasn't expecting any miracle rulings. About a month after the hearing, before judgment was rendered, I decided to go to the prison and see Avery. We hadn't had much time to talk after the hearing, and I wanted to make sure he was okay. Throughout most of the hearing, he had sat pleasantly, but when some of his former foster parents had come into court, I could see him become upset. I thought a post-hearing visit would be helpful. When I pulled into the parking lot, I once again saw that loathsome truck with its flags, stickers, and menacing gun rack. I feared another encounter with the guard. Sure enough, after checking in with the warden's secretary and heading toward the visitation room, I saw him approaching me. I braced myself, preparing for the encounter. And then something surprising happened. Hello, Mr. Stevenson, how are you? The guard asked. He sounded earnest and sincere. I was skeptical. Well, I'm fine, how are you? He was looking at me differently from how he had before. He wasn't glaring and seemed genuinely to want to interact. I decided to play along. Look, I'll step into the bathroom and get ready for your search. Oh, Mr. Stevenson, you don't have to worry about that, he quickly replied. I know you're okay. Everything about his tone and demeanor was different. Oh, well, thank you, I appreciate that. I'll go back and sign the book then. Mr. Stevenson, you don't have to do that. I saw you coming and signed your name in for you. I've taken care of it. I realized that he actually looked nervous. I was confused by the shift in his attitude. I thanked him and walked to the visitation room door with the officer following behind me. He turned to unlock the padlock so I could go inside. As I started to walk past him to enter, he placed his hand on my shoulder. Hey, um, I'd like to tell you something. I wasn't sure where he was going with this. You know, I took old Avery to court for his hearing and was down there with y'all for those three days. And, um, well... I want you to know that I was listening. He removed his hand from my shoulder and looked past me, as if staring at something behind me. You know, I, um, well, I appreciate what you're doing. I really do. It was kind of difficult for me to be in that courtroom to hear what y'all was talking about. I came up in foster care, you know. I came up in foster care, too. His face softened. Man, I didn't think anybody had it as bad as me. They moved me around like I wasn't wanted nowhere. I had it pretty rough. But listening to what you were saying about Avery made me realize that there were other people who had it as bad as I did. I guess even worse. I mean, it, it brought back a lot of memories sitting in that courtroom. He reached into his pocket to pull out a handkerchief to wipe the perspiration that had formed on his brow. I noticed for the first time that he had a Confederate flag tattooed on his arm. You know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I think it's good what you're doing. I got so angry coming up that there were plenty of times when I really wanted to hurt somebody just because I was angry. I made it to 18, joined the military, and you know, I've been okay. But sitting in that courtroom brought back memories, and I think I realized how I'm still kind of angry. I smiled, he continued. That expert doctor you put up said that some of the damage that's done to kids in these abusive homes is permanent. That kind of made me worry. 
You think that's true? Oh, I think we can always do better, I told him. The bad things that happen to us don't define us. It's just important sometimes that people understand where we're coming from. We were both speaking softly to one another. Another officer walked by and stared at us as I went on. You know, I really appreciate you saying to me what you just said. It means a lot. I really mean that. Sometimes I forget how we all need mitigation at some point. He looked at me and smiled. You kept talking about mitigation in that court. I said to myself, what the hell is wrong with him? Why does he keep talking about mitigation like that? When I got home, I looked it up. I wasn't sure what you meant at first, but now I do. I laughed. Sometimes I get going in court and I'm not sure I know what I'm saying either. Well, I think you've done good, real good. He looked me in the eye before he extended his hand. We shook hands and I started toward the door again. I was just about inside when he grabbed my arm again. Oh, wait, I've got to tell you something else. Listen, I did something I probably wasn't supposed to do, but I want you to know about it. On the trip back down here after court on that last day, well, I know how Avery is, you know. Well, anyway, I just want you to know that I took an exit off the interstate on the way back. And, well, I took him to a Wendy's and I bought him a chocolate milkshake. I stared at him incredulously, and he broke into a chuckle. Then he locked me inside the room. I was so stunned by what the officer said I didn't hear the other officer bring Avery into the room. When I realized Avery was already in the room, I turned and greeted him. When he didn't say anything, I was a little alarmed. Are you okay? Yes, sir, I'm fine. Are, are you okay? he asked. Yes, Avery, I'm really doing well. I waited for our ritual to begin. When he didn't say anything, I figured I'd just play my part. Look, I tried to bring you a chocolate milkshake, but they wouldn't. Avery cut me off. Oh, I got a milkshake. I'm okay now. As I began discussing the hearing, he grinned. We talked for an hour before I had to see another client. Avery never again asked me for a chocolate milkshake. We won a new trial for him and ultimately got him off death row and into a facility where he could receive mental health treatment. I never saw the officer again. Someone told me he quit not long after that last time I saw him. Chapter 11 I'll Fly Away It was the third bomb threat in two months. As we quickly cleared the office and waited for the police to arrive, the entire staff was nervous. We now had five attorneys, an investigator, and three administrative staff members. Law students had started arriving for short-term internships, which provided us with additional legal assistance and critically needed investigative help. But none of them had signed on for bomb threats. It was tempting to ignore them, but two years earlier, an African-American civil rights lawyer in Savannah, Georgia, named Robert Robbie Robinson, was murdered when a bomb sent to his law office exploded. Around the same time, a federal appeals court judge, Robert Vance, was killed in Birmingham by a mail bomb. Days later, a third bomb was sent to a civil rights office in Florida, and a fourth to a courthouse in Atlanta the bomber seemed to be attacking legal professionals connected to civil rights. We were warned that we could be targets, and for weeks we carefully hauled our mail packages to the federal courthouse for x-ray screenings before opening them. 
After that, bomb threats were no joke. Everyone fled the building while we discussed the likelihood of an actual bombing. The caller had described our building precisely when making his threat. Sharon, our receptionist, had scolded the caller. She was a young mother of two small children and had grown up in a poor, rural, white family. She spoke to people plainly and directly. Why are you doing this? You're scaring us. She said the man had sounded middle-aged and southern, but she couldn't give any more of a description. I'm doing you a favor, he said threateningly. I want y'all to stop doing what you're doing. My first option is not to kill everybody, so you better get out of there now. Next time there won't be a warning. It had been a month since the Macmillan hearing. The first time the office was threatened, the caller had made racist remarks about the need to teach us a lesson. Around the same time, I got threatening calls at home. One typical caller said, quote, If you think we're going to let you help that nigger get away with killing that girl, you've got another thing coming. You're both going to be dead niggers. End quote. Although I was handling other cases, I was certain the calls were in response to the Macmillan case. Leading up to the hearing, Michael and I had been followed several times while doing investigative work in Monroe County. A scary man had called me late one night to tell me that someone had offered him a lot of money to kill me, but he said he wasn't going to do it because he respected what we did. I expressed my appreciation for his support and politely thanked him. It was hard to know how seriously to take any of it, but it was definitely unnerving. After we cleared the building, the police went through the office with dogs. No bomb was found, and when the building didn't blow up after an hour and a half, we all filed back inside. We had work to do. A few days later, I received a different kind of bombshell, this time a call from the clerk's office in Baldwin County. The clerk was calling to let me know that Judge Norton had ruled in the McMillan case. She needed my fax number to send me a copy of the ruling. I gave it to her and sat nervously by the fax machine. When only three sheets of paper came through the machine, I was concerned. The pages contained a tersely worded order from Judge Norton denying us relief. I was more disappointed than devastated. I had suspected that this would be Judge Norton's response. For all his interest at the hearing, he had never seemed particularly engaged over the basic question of whether Walter was guilty or innocent. He was locked into a maintenance role. He was a custodian for the system who was unlikely to overturn the previous judgment even if there was compelling evidence of innocence. What was surprising, however, was how superficial and insubstantial and uninterested the court's two-and-a-half-page order read. The judge addressed only the testimony of Ralph Myers and none of the legal claims we'd presented or any of the testimonies of the other dozen-plus witnesses. In fact, there was no case law cited in the entire order. The order read... Ralph Myers took the stand before this court, swore to tell the truth, and proceeded to recant most, if not all, of the relevant portions of his testimony at trial. Clearly, Ralph Myers has either perjured himself at trial or perjured himself in front of this court. The following areas of concern were considered in reaching this decision. The demeanor of the witness, the opportunity of the witness to have knowledge of the facts which he testified to at trial, the rationale as stated by the witness for his testimony at the first trial, the rationale as stated by the defendant for his recantation, 
The evidence of external pressures brought to bear on the witness prior to and after both trial and recantation, the actions of the witness that lend credence to his trial testimony, and the actions of the witness that lend credence to his recantation. Evidence adduced at trial in contradiction of the witness testimony on details, and due to the nature of this case, any evidence from any source concerning the inability of the witness to have known the facts to which he testified to at trial. Since the trial of this matter was conducted before the Honorable R. E. L. Key, Circuit Judge, retired, this court did not have the opportunity to compare the demeanor of the witness during trial testimony and his recantation testimony. A review of the other factors set out above does not provide conclusive evidence that the witness, Ralph Myers, perjured himself at the original trial. There is ample evidence that pressure has been brought to bear on Ralph Myers since his trial testimony, which could tend to discredit his recantation. There is absolutely no evidence in the trial record or the recantation testimony that places Ralph Myers somewhere other than the scene of the crime at the time it was committed. This cause having been remanded to the court for a determination of whether there is evidence to support the theory that Ralph Myers perjured himself at the original trial, and this court having determined that there is insufficient evidence to support that theory, it is therefore ordered, adjudged, and decreed that the trial testimony of Ralph Myers is not found to have been perjured testimony. Done this 19th day of May, 1992. Thomas B. Norton, Jr., Circuit Judge. While Chapman had suggested that Myers must have been pressured to recant, the district attorney presented no actual evidence to support that claim, which made the judge's ruling hard to understand. I had advised Walter and his family that we would likely need to go to an appellate court for any real chance of relief, despite how positive everyone thought the hearing had been. I was optimistic about what our evidence might accomplish in the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals. We were now regularly arguing cases in front of that court. Following my first Macmillan argument, we had filed almost two dozen death penalty appeals, and the court was starting to respond to our advocacy. We had won four reversals in death penalty cases in 1990, four more in 1991, and by the end of 1992, we'd won relief for another eight death row prisoners. The court frequently complained about being forced to order new trials or grant relief. But nonetheless, ruled in our favor. In a few years, some of the appellate court judges would be attacked and replaced in partisan judicial elections by candidates who complained about the court's rulings in death penalty cases. But we persisted and continued raising reversible errors in capital cases. We were pushing the court to enforce the law in these cases, and when they refused, we were having success getting the Alabama Supreme Court and federal courts to grant relief. Based on this recent experience, I thought we could win relief for Macmillan on appeal. Even if the court was unwilling to rule that Walter was innocent and should be released, the withholding of exculpatory evidence was extreme enough that the court would have a hard time avoiding the case law requiring a new trial. Nothing could be assured, but I explained to Walter that we were only just now getting to a court where our claims would be seriously considered. Michael had stayed long past the two years he had committed to us, but he was now scheduled to move to San Diego to start a job as a federal public defender. He agonized about leaving our office, although he was less conflicted about leaving Alabama. I assigned one of our new attorneys, Bernard Harcourt, to replace Michael on Walter's case. 
Bernard was a lot like Michael in that he was smart, determined, and extremely hardworking. He had first worked with me when he was a law student at Harvard Law School. He became so engaged in the work that he asked the federal judge he was clerking for after law school if he could cut short his two-year clerkship to join us in Alabama. The judge agreed, and Bernard arrived shortly before Michael left. Raised in New York City by French parent, he had attended the Lycée Français de New York in Manhattan, a high school that was unapologetic about its European perspective on education. After graduating from Princeton, Bernard worked in banking before pursuing his law degree. He had been preparing for a traditional legal career until he came down to work with us one summer and became fascinated by the issues that death penalty cases presented. He and his girlfriend Mia moved to Montgomery and were intrigued by life in Alabama. Bernard's quick immersion in the McMillan case intensified his cultural adventure more than he could have ever imagined. The community's presence at the hearing got people talking about what we had presented in court, and that encouraged more people to come forward with helpful information. All sorts of people were contacting us with wide-ranging claims of corruption and misconduct. Only a few things here and there were useful to us in our efforts to free Walter, but it was all interesting. Bernard and I continued to track leads and interview people who had insights to share about life in Monroe County. The threats we received made me worry about the hostility that Walter would face if he was ever released. I wondered how safely he could live in the community if everyone was persuaded that he was a dangerous murderer. We began discussing the idea of reaching out to a few people who might help us publicly dramatize the injustice of Mr. McMillan's wrongful conviction as a way of setting the stage for his possible release. If the public could only know what we knew, it might ease his re-entry into freedom. We wanted people to understand this simple fact: Walter did not commit that murder. His freedom wouldn't be based on some tricky legal loophole or the exploitation of a technicality. It would be based on simple justice. He was an innocent man. On the other hand, I didn't think media attention would help win the case now pending in the Court of Criminal Appeals. In fact, the chief judge on that court, John Patterson, had famously sued the New York Times. Over their coverage of the civil rights movement, when he was Alabama's governor, it was a common tactic used by Southern politicians during civil rights protests. Sue national media outlets for defamation if they provide sympathetic coverage of activists, or if they characterize Southern politicians and law enforcement officers unfavorably. Southern state court judges and all white juries were all too willing to rule in favor of defamed local officials. And state authorities won millions of dollars in judgments this way. More important, the defamation lawsuits chilled sympathetic coverage of civil rights activism. In 1960, the New York Times printed an advertisement titled "Heed Their Rising Voices" that attempted to raise money to defend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. against perjury charges in Alabama. Southern officials responded by going on the offensive and suing the newspaper. Public Safety Commissioner L. B. Sullivan and Governor Patterson claimed defamation. A local jury awarded them a half a million dollars, and the case was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. In a landmark ruling, New York Times v. Sullivan changed the standard for defamation and libel by requiring plaintiffs to prove malice—that is, evidence of actual knowledge on the part of the publisher that a statement is false. The ruling marked a significant victory for freedom of the press, 
and it liberated media outlets and publishers to talk more honestly about civil rights protests and activism. But in the South, it generated even more contempt for the national press, and that animosity has lingered beyond the civil rights era. I had no doubt that national press coverage of Walter's case would not help our cause at the Court of Criminal Appeals. But I did think getting a more informed view of Walter's conviction and the murder would make his life after release less dangerous, assuming we could ever get his conviction overturned. We felt that we had to take our chances and get the story out. I was concerned about the inability of people in the local community to get a fair picture of what was going on. Aside from the hostility we feared he would face if Walter was released, we were worried about what would happen if a new trial was ordered. All of the prejudicial media coverage would make a fair trial nearly impossible. The local press in Monroe County and Mobile had demonized Walter and had defiantly maintained that his conviction was reliable and his execution necessary. Local papers had painted Walter as a dangerous drug dealer who had possibly murdered several innocent teenagers. Monroeville and Mobile newspapers freely printed assertions that Walter was a drug kingpin, a sexual predator, and a gang leader. When he was first arrested, local headlines emphasized the absurd sexual misconduct charges involving Ralph Myers. McMillan charged with sodomy was a common headline. In covering the hearings, the Monroe Journal focused on the danger Walter posed. Quote, Those entering the courtroom had to pass through a metal detector, as has been the case throughout the court proceedings against McMillan, and officers were stationed throughout the courtroom. End quote. Despite all of the evidence presented at our hearing showing that Walter had nothing to do with the Pittman murder, the local press invoked the case to scare up more fear about Walter. Convicted Slayer wanted an East Bruton murder was an early headline in the Bruton paper. Rhonda wasn't the only girl killed, was the headline in the Mobile Press Register after our hearing. The Mobile paper reported after the hearing, quote, Myers and McMillan were part of a burglary, theft, forgery, and drug smuggling ring that operated in several counties in South Alabama, according to law enforcement officers. McMillan was the leader of the operation, end quote. From its focus on his pretrial placement on death row, to the extra security surrounding his court appearances, the narrative in the press was clear. This man was extremely dangerous. At this point, people seemed uninterested in the truth surrounding the crime. During the most recent hearing in Baldwin County, the state's local supporters walked out of the courtroom rather than hear the evidence that supported Walter's innocence. It was risky, but we hoped that national press coverage of our side of the story would change the narrative. A Washington Post journalist, Walt Harrington, had come to Alabama to do a piece on our work a year earlier and had heard me describe the McMillan case. He passed that information to a journalist friend of his, Pete Early, who contacted me and became immediately interested. After reading the transcripts and files we provided him, he jumped into the case, spent time with several of the players, and quickly came to share our astonishment that Walter had been convicted on such unreliable evidence. I'd given a speech at Yale Law School earlier in the year that was attended by a producer from the popular CBS investigative program, 60 Minutes, and he also called me. We'd gotten calls from various news magazine programs over the previous few years that expressed interest in covering our work, but I was wary. My general attitude was that press coverage rarely helped our clients. Beyond the general anti-media sentiments in the South, the death penalty was particularly polarizing. 
It's such a politically charged topic that even sympathetic pieces about people on death row usually triggered a local backlash that created more problems for the client and the case. Even though the client sometimes wanted press attention, I was extremely resistant to media interviews about pending cases. I knew of too many cases where a favorable profile in the media had provoked an expedited execution date or retaliatory mistreatment that made things much worse. We filed our appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeals that summer. With no small amount of lingering uncertainty, I decided to move forward with the 60 Minutes piece. Veteran reporter Ed Bradley and his producer, David Gelber, came down from New York City to Monroeville on a 100-degree day in July and interviewed many of the people whose testimony we'd presented at our hearing. They spoke with Walter, Ralph Myers, Karen Kelly, Darnell Houston, Clay Cast, Jimmy Williams, Walter's family, and Woodrow Eichner. They confronted Bill Hooks at his job and conducted an extensive interview with Tommy Chapman. Word got around quickly that news celebrity Ed Bradley was in town, upsetting local officials. The Monroe Journal wrote, Too many of these out-of-town writers express open scorn for the people and institutions they encounter here, making no more than a superficial effort to gather facts. Worse, a few have been demonstrably inaccurate. We could do without any more news coverage of the big-time reporter come to Hicktown genre. Even before the piece was broadcast, the local media seemed to be urging the community to distrust anything they heard reported about the case. In CBS Examines Murder Case, a local reporter for the Monroe Journal wrote, Monroe County District Attorney Tommy Chapman said he believes researchers for the CBS television news magazine program 60 Minutes had their minds made up before ever coming here. Chapman had taken to using a photo of Walter obtained at the time of his arrest that showed him with long, bushy hair and a beard, which Chapman thought made it clear that he was a dangerous criminal. The person they interviewed at Holman Prison is not the same person arrested by Sheriff Tate for this murder, Chapman explained. The journal added that Chapman offered CBS the photograph of the real Macmillan taken at the time of his arrest, but they were not interested. Prisoners in Alabama are required to remain clean-shaven, so of course Walter looked different when interviewed on camera. When the 60 Minutes piece aired months later, local officials were quick to discredit it. The Mobile Press Register headline was, D.A. TV account of Macmillan's conviction a disgrace. The article quoted Chapman. For them to hold themselves up as a reputable news show is beyond belief and irresponsible. The publicity was characterized as further injuring Rhonda Morrison's parents. The local writers complained that the Morrisons had to worry and deal with the stress that new publicity could lead many people to think that Macmillan is innocent. The local media were eager to join the prosecutors in criticizing the 60 Minutes piece because it implicated their coverage, which had largely presented only the prosecution's theory and characterization of Walter and the crime but people in the community watched 60 Minutes all the time and generally trusted it. Despite the local media reaction, the CBS coverage gave the community a summary of the evidence we'd presented in court and created questions and doubts about Walter's guilt. Some influential community leaders also thought it made Monroeville look backward and possibly racist in a way that was not good for the community's image 
or efforts at recruiting business, and business leaders started asking tough questions of Chapman and law enforcement about what was going on in the case. People in the black community were thrilled to see honest coverage of the case. They had been whispering about Walter's wrongful conviction for years. The case had so traumatized the black community that many had become preoccupied with each court development and ruling. We frequently got calls from people simply seeking an update. Some callers sought clarification of a particular point in the case that had been the subject of serious debate in a barber shop or at a social gathering. For many black people in the region, watching the evidence that we had presented in court. Now laid out on national television was therapeutic. In the 60 Minutes interview with Chapman, he dismissed as silly the suggestion of any racial bias in Walter McMillan's prosecution. He calmly professed his complete confidence and certainty that McMillan was guilty, and that he should be executed as soon as possible. He expressed contempt for Walter's attorneys and people who tried to second-guess juries. We later found out that privately, despite the confidence expressed in his statements to local media and to 60 Minutes, Chapman had begun to worry about the reliability of the evidence against Walter. He couldn't ignore the problems in the case that had been exposed at the hearing. Given our success in other death penalty cases, he must have feared the very real possibility of the appellate courts overturning Walter's conviction. Chapman had become the public face defending the conviction. And he realized that he'd put his own credibility on the line by relying on the work of local investigators, work that was now revealed as almost farcically flawed. Chapman called Tate, Eichner, and Benson together shortly after the hearing and expressed his concerns. When he asked the local investigators to explain the contradictory evidence we had presented, he wasn't impressed with what he heard. Not long after that, he formally asked. ABI officials in Montgomery to conduct another investigation into the murder to confirm Mr. McMillan's guilt. Chapman never informed us directly about the new investigation, even though for over two years we'd sought just such a reexamination of the evidence. When the new ABI investigators, Tom Taylor and Greg Cole, called me, I eagerly agreed to share case files and information. After meeting with them. I was even more hopeful about what might come out of the investigation. They both seemed like no-nonsense, experienced investigators who were interested in doing credible and reliable work. Within a few weeks, Taylor and Cole seemed to doubt that McMillan was guilty. They were not connected to any of the players in South Alabama. We gave them files, memoranda, and even some original evidence because we had nothing to hide. I was nervous that if we won a reversal and had to retry the case, we might be disadvantaged by disclosing so much information to state investigators, who would then be better prepared to smear or undermine our evidence. But I was still confident that any reasonable, honest investigation would reveal the absurdity of the charges against Walter. By January, six months had passed since we had filed our appeal at the Court of Criminal Appeals, and a ruling was due any week. That's when Tom Taylor called and said that he and Cole wanted to meet with us again. We talked a few times during their investigation, but this time we'd be discussing their findings. When they arrived, Bernard and I sat down with them in my office, and they wasted no time. There is no way Walter McMillan killed Rhonda Morrison. 
Tom Taylor spoke plainly and directly. We're going to report to the Attorney General, the District Attorney, and anyone who asks that McMillan had nothing to do with either of these murders and is completely innocent. I tried not to look as thrilled as I felt. I didn't want to scare away this good news. That's terrific, I said, trying to sound unsurprised. I'm pleased to hear that, and I have to say I'm extremely grateful that you've looked at the evidence in this case thoroughly and honestly. Well, confirming that McMillan had nothing to do with this wasn't that hard, Taylor replied. Why would a drug kingpin live in the conditions he was living in and work 15 hours a day cutting timber on difficult terrain? What we were told by local law enforcement about McMillan didn't make much sense, and the story Myers told at trial definitely made no sense. I still can't believe a jury ever convicted him. Cole spoke up. You'll be very interested to know that both Hooks and Hightower have admitted that their trial testimony was false. Really? I couldn't hide my surprise at this. Yes. When we were asked to investigate this case, we were told that you should be investigated because Hooks had said that you had offered him money and a condo in Mexico if he changed his testimony. Taylor was dead serious. A condo in Mexico? On a beach, I think, Cole added nonchalantly. Wait, me? I was going to give Bill Hooks a beach condo in Mexico if he changed his testimony against Walter? It was difficult to contain my shock. Well, I know it must sound crazy to you, but believe me, there were people down there who were raring to get you indicted. But when we talked to Hooks, it didn't take very long before he not only acknowledged that he'd never spoken to you and that you had never bribed him, but he also admitted that his trial testimony against McMillan was completely made up. Well, we've never had any doubts that Hooks was lying. Cole chuckled. We started polygraphing people and things fell apart pretty quickly. Bernard asked the obvious question. Well, what happens now? Taylor looked over at his partner and then at us. Well, we're not completely done. We'd like to solve this crime and we have a suspect. I'm wondering if you might be willing to help us. I know you're not trying to get anybody on death row, but we thought you might at least consider providing some help to identify the real killer. People will be a lot more accepting of Mr. McMillan's innocence if they know who really committed this crime. While it was ridiculous to think that Walter's freedom depended on the arrest of someone else, I had imagined that a successful investigation might get to this, and I couldn't dispute that even if an ABI investigation cleared Walter, people would still think he'd gotten away with murder until the actual killer was identified. We had long ago concluded that finding the real murderer might be the most effective way to free Walter, but without the power and authority of law enforcement officers, we were limited in what we could discover. We did have a strong theory. Several witnesses had told us that around the time of the crime, a white man had been seen leaving the cleaners. We had learned that before her death, Rhonda Morrison had been receiving menacing calls, and that there was a man who had been avidly and inappropriately pursuing her, stopping by unannounced at the cleaners, maybe even stalking her. We had not initially been able to identify this strange man. But we did have our suspicions. We had been contacted by a white man who seemed intensely interested in the case. He would call wanting to talk at length about what we were investigating. He would hint at having information that could help us, but he was coy and slow to share anything concrete. 
He repeatedly told us that he knew that Macmillan was innocent, and he would help us prove it. Eventually, after several calls and hours of conversation, he claimed to know where the murder weapon, which had never been recovered, might be located. We tried to get as much information out of him as we could. We also checked his background. He told us that he'd had some conflicts with another man in town, and that the more he talked, the more he blamed this other man for the shooting death of Morrison. When we investigated this theory, we weren't impressed. The other man didn't match the eyewitness descriptions of the person seen leaving the cleaners, and he didn't have our caller's history of stalking, violence against women, and preoccupation with the Morrison murder. We began to think that our caller could be the person who had murdered Rhonda Morrison. We had dozens of phone conversations with him, and even met him a couple of times. We were less and less convinced that the man he was accusing of committing the crime was involved. At some point, we asked him some direct questions about where he was on the day of the murder, which must have alarmed him because we heard from him less often after that. Before I could tell any of this to the ABI investigators, Taylor said, "We think you may have interviewed our suspect and may have collected a good bit of information from this guy." We were hoping you might allow us to have access to that information and those interviews. He named our suspect. I told them we would give them access to the information we had collected. None of it was protected by attorney-client privilege. We had never represented this man or obtained anything confidentially. I told Taylor and Cole to give us a few days to organize the information, and then we would turn it over. We want to get Walter out of prison as soon as possible. I insisted. Well, I think the attorney general and the lawyers would like to maintain the status quo for a few more months until we can make an arrest of the actual killer. Right, but you do understand that the status quo is a problem for us. Walter has been on death row for nearly six years for a crime he didn't commit. Taylor and Cole looked at each other uncomfortably. Taylor responded, "We're not lawyers, so I can't really understand where they're coming from." If I was in prison for something I didn't do, and you were my lawyer, I hope to hell you'd get me out as soon as you could. When they left, Bernard and I were very excited, but we remained troubled by this plan to maintain the status quo. I decided I would call the attorney general's office and see if they would concede legal error in the pending appeal, which would ensure relief at the appellate court and perhaps expedite Walter's release. Another lawyer from the attorney general's office named Ken Nunnally had taken over the appeal. I had dealt with Nunnally in several other death penalty cases. I told him that I'd met with the ABI investigators and that I understood that there were some case developments that favored Mr. McMillan. It became clear that the state lawyers had been discussing this case quite a bit. Brian, it's all going to work out, but you'll need to wait a few more months. He's been on the road for years, so a few more months are not going to make that much of a difference. Ken, every day makes a difference when you're locked down on death row and you've been wrongly convicted. I tried to get a commitment, but he offered nothing. I asked to meet with the attorney general or whatever official had final decision-making authority, and he said that he would see what he could do. Within a few days, the state submitted a peculiar pleading to the court of criminal appeals. The attorney general's motion asked the court to stay the litigation and not issue a ruling because they quote may have uncovered exculpatory evidence favorable to Mr. McMillan that could entitle him to a new trial end quote 
but they needed more time to complete their investigation. I was furious that the state would try to prolong any order granting relief to Walter. It was consistent with everything that had happened over the last six years, but it was still maddening. We quickly filed a response opposing the state's motion. We told the court that there was overwhelming evidence that Mr. McMillan's rights had been violated and that he was entitled to immediate relief. Delaying relief would add further injury to a man who had been wrongfully convicted and condemned to death row for a crime he did not commit. We urged the court to deny the state's request and rule quickly. I was talking to many and the family every week now, keeping everyone updated about the new state investigation. I feel like something good is about to happen, Brian, Minnie said to me. They've kept him for years. Now it's time they let him go. They have to let him go. I appreciated her optimism, but I worried, too. We'd been disappointed so often before. We have to remain hopeful, Minnie. I've always told people no lie can live forever, and this has always been one big lie. I wasn't exactly sure how to manage the family's expectations. I felt I was supposed to be the cautionary voice that prepared family members for the worst, even while I urged them to hope for the best. It was a task that was growing in complexity as I handled more cases and saw the myriad ways that things could go wrong. But I was developing a maturing recognition of the importance of hopefulness in creating justice. I'd started addressing the subject of hopefulness in talks to small groups. I'd grown fond of quoting Baklev Havel, the great Czech leader who had said that hope was the one thing that people struggling in Eastern Europe needed during the era of Soviet domination. Havel had said that people struggling for independence wanted money and recognition from other countries. They wanted more criticism of the Soviet Empire from the West and more diplomatic pressure. But Havel had said that these were things they wanted. The only thing they needed was hope. Not that pie-in-the-sky stuff, not a preference for optimism over pessimism, but rather an orientation of the spirit, the kind of hope that creates a willingness to position oneself in a hopeless place and be a witness, that allows one to believe in a better future, even in the face of abusive power. That kind of hope makes one strong. Havel prescribed exactly what our work seemed to require. Walter's case had needed it more than most, so I didn't discourage many. Together, we hoped. On February 23, nearly six weeks after getting the ABI's report, I received a call from the clerk of the court informing us that the Court of Criminal Appeals had ruled in the Macmillan case and that we could pick up the opinion. You're going to like this, she said cryptically. I ran over to the courthouse and was out of breath by the time I sat down to read the 35-page ruling. The clerk was right. The ruling invalidated Walter's conviction and death sentence. The court didn't conclude that he was innocent and must be released, but it ruled in our favor on every other claim and ordered a new trial. I didn't realize how much I'd feared that we would lose until we finally won. I jumped into the car and raced down to death row to tell Walter in person. I watched him take it all in. He leaned back and gave me a familiar chuckle. Well, he said slowly, you know, that's, that's good. That, that's good. Good? It's great. Yeah, it is great. 
He was grinning now with a freedom I hadn't seen before. Oof, man, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Oof. His smile started to fade, and he began slowly shaking his head. Six years. Six years gone. He looked away with a pained expression. These six years feel like fifty. Six years just gone. I've been so worried they were going to kill me, I, I haven't even thought about the time I've lost. His troubled look sobered me, too. I know, Walter, and we're not clear yet, I said. The ruling only gives you a new trial. Given what the ABI has said, I can't believe that they would try to prosecute you again. But with this crowd, reasonable conduct is never guaranteed. I'm going to try to get you home as soon as humanly possible. With thoughts of home, his mood lightened, and we started talking about things we'd been afraid to discuss since we'd met. He said, I want to meet everybody who has helped me in Montgomery. I want to go around with you and tell the world what they did to me. There are other people here who are as innocent as I am. He paused and started smiling again. Man, I want some good food, too. I ain't had no real good food in so long that I can't even remember what it tastes like. Whatever you want, it will be my treat, I said proudly. From what I hear, you might not be able to afford the kind of meal I want, he teased. I want steak, chicken, pork, maybe some good cooked coon. Coon? Oh, don't pretend. You know you like grilled raccoon. Please don't sit there and tell me you ain't never had no good coon when I know you grew up in the country just like I did. There has been many a time when me and my cousin would be driving, and a coon would run across the road, and he'd say, Stop the car! Stop the car! And I'd stop the car, and he'd jump out and go running into the woods and come back minutes later with a raccoon he'd uncaught. We would take it home, skin it, and fry or barbecue that meat. Man, what you talking about? That's some good eating. You've got to be joking. I grew up in the country, but I have never chased any kind of wild animal into the woods to take home and eat. We relaxed and laughed a lot. We had laughed before today. Walter's sense of humor hadn't failed him despite his six years on death row, and this case had given him lots of fodder. We would often talk about situations and people connected to the case that, for all the damage they had caused, had still made us laugh at their absurdity. But the laughter today felt very different. It was the laughter of liberation. I drove back to Montgomery and thought about how to expedite Walter's release. I called Tommy Chapman and told him that I intended to file a motion to dismiss all charges against Walter in light of the appellate court's ruling, and I hoped he would consider joining the motion or at least not oppose it. He sighed. We should talk when this is all over. Once you file your motion, I'll get back to you about whether I'll join it. We certainly won't oppose it.